Alright everybody, welcome to Video Night Franchise Frenzy. We're going to discuss the Die Hard series. We were going to do this last month, but frankly, we ran out of time. So we're going to do it right now. I'm your host, Michael. My co-host for this is Jacob. How's it going, Jacob? Howdy, folks. It's a Kaye, motherfucker. Oh, nigga, you ruined it. I was going to go, hey, Jacob. Yippee Kaye to you, motherfucker. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you. Yippee Kaye to you, too, motherfucker. <laughs> Oh, God, we're so offensive. Uh, there will be some people uh, upset with us right now, but I don't know. I thought it was funny. Like, this song yeah, is so... fuck your face, Michael. What? <laughs> I was like, fuck your face, Michael. <laughs> the, uh, the guy that I started this show with, um, he would refuse any sort of, like, dirty, foul, anything. Just I couldn't even say hell or damn, and he would edit it out, and it's kind of funny that I'm just doing this right now because it's so... Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, if he's listening to this episode, he's probably upset. <laughs> oh, well, tell him, to, tell him to cry me a river. All right, everybody. So let's start the series <laughs> off, of course. How else could we possibly start but with the original, the Die Hard, the first Die Hard, which is so amazing. And, uh, I mean, it is just balls to the wall, one of the greatest action movies ever made. And I think... You were not born when this came out, right? This is 1988. Were you born yet? I was born in June of 88. Ah, so, okay, you know what? Die Hard came out in June, I believe. So, I think it's like a perfect birthday present to you. That every year on your birthday, you should watch Die Hard. And on Christmas, too. It counts as a holiday movie. Yes, <laughs> technically it does, but it doesn't have the spirit of Thanksgiving, uh, of uh, Christmas. What, what the hell was that? I almost said uh, Thanksgiving, Halloween, Santa. <laughs> <laughs> Which aren't even. A, a, uh, I drink too much. I know. I was like, that's quite an interesting combo. I like it. It's like bittersweet. It's almost like, it's like you know, like sixty-five percent cacao chocolate. <laughs> uh, this one, uh, it, it's actually fairly low budget considering the rest of them. But at the time, thirty million wasn't something to sneeze at when you look at what action movies were getting. I think Lethal Weapon got fifteen million action movies. There wasn't really a lot of money spent on them except for Rambo. And, you know, all of a sudden after Die Hard, people just started pouring crap tons of cash into these high concept action flicks. Wow. That's, I know, I, honestly, especially for back then, the 80s, 15 million, definitely seems like a lot. Now, this is something weird that you may not know. This is based on a novel called Nothing Lasts Forever. Now, that book is a sequel to The Detective, which starred Frank Sinatra. If things had gone in the right direction, Frank Sinatra might have been playing. <laughs> might have John been playing McClane. John McClane. <laughs> like, old, retired. Can you imagine him just, like, kind of crooning as he says those big old lines, like, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. <laughs> Come or, out to the coast, we'll have a good time. Come out to the ghost. We'll have a good time. Have some laughs. <laughs> yeah, this, I know. This, um, a lot of... The funny thing is, I was thinking about this the other day. It seems like in the late 80s, early 90s, action movies just had an insane amount of blood. It was like, you started to bring horror elements into action movies, like lots of gore. And I was trying to like, was it Die Hard? And I started thinking, I was like, no, it was Commando. Joel Silver knew that if you added like some really shocking blood into an action movie, people would pay attention. It was teased a bit in the Rambo movies, but it was it was full force by the time Commando came out. You know, they're chopping off arms, they're throwing saw blades in people's heads. 
And if you look at Die Hard, his knees explode, or that guy's knees explode, and uh, John McClane's pulling the glass out of his feet. It's pretty gross. Oh, God, yeah. It is. It was pretty... Yeah, I was like, ah, gosh, barefoot, stepping in glass and all that? Ow! That's so uncomfortable. And, yeah. of course, yeah. in the 80s, like, when it came to, you know, action gore movies, oh, my gosh, Robocop, definitely. Yeah. Paul Verhoeven, she, way, way out there. Because he loves it that much. He's seems slightly psychotic. <laughs> Joel Silver is the producer of this, Commando, Lethal Weapon, uh, Action Jackson, Roadhouse. Uh, he, he basically like pioneered a certain style of action movie, which I miss. You don't, they don't make movies like this. And, you know, and Shane Black used to write the best action movies, or at least try to fix them, you know? And, uh, you know, yeah. he's, I think he's going to make another action movie. He's got one coming up with... Uh, What's uh, Russell, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling? Ryan Gosling, yes. I'm really interested in that. I'm, ho I'm hoping it's a mixture of the classic action movies with a little Kiss Kiss Bang Bang going on with it. Oh, of course. I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. That was so hilarious. Now, what a lot of people don't know, and I didn't even know this until literally... I've seen this movie probably uh, uh, 50 or 60 times. I did not know this until I looked it up on Wikipedia that this was originally pitched to Arnold Schwarzenegger as the sequel to Commando. Huh. That's pretty interesting, and but I'm kind of glad they didn't. No, I'm kind of glad the Commando was just one, one and done kind of movie. Well, Bruce Willis is different than a lot of the action stars at the time because he's a little bit shorter. He's not a, he's not a muscle bound goon. He's tough, but he's not like a big block of raw. And he's more talkative. Most action heroes of this era were very stone faced, monosyllabic, and he changed everything for action movies. Indeed, yeah, he showed that like pretty much a lot of people can't, you know, people his size could actually play a part like that. He pretty much broke boundaries, which was awesome, which is what should be done in most movies, especially certain genres like that. Yeah, and the studio wanted nothing to do with him. Joel Silver just kept pushing and kept pushing. Lee, I think he got paid $5 million for it, which at the time everybody thought was insane because he had a minor hit with uh, Blind Date, which is a full-on comedy. He was on Moonlighting, and he never proved himself as an action star, but what they needed was a guy who could be tough, but at the same time, very, very relatable. And funny. Yes. You know, so they decided to bring out a New York cop to California. And also, who else? Oh, the supporting cast. You also got Alan Rickman as the villain. Yes. Who Fantastic. was... Oh, my God. Wonderful actor in everything he's done. Yes. You know, from playing Rasputin to Galaxy, <laughs> Galaxy Quest. And, of course, most recently, people would know him as, you know, Severus Snape from the Harry Potter series. Uh, I remember Dogma, the angel with no balls. That, yes, of course, yes. He was the Metatron, the voice of God. Yes. Because God's real voice could kill every, anybody, no, anyone with mortal ears. He's also fantastic in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh, yes, that's the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah, he and said, then, he said that he? Die Hard kind of set him up just to play villains, and he knew when to walk away. He walked away from probably a lot of money, but at the same time, his career could have hit a wall if he continued to take the villain roles. So he stopped, saved his money, and then he went to do a bunch of uh, small, independent movies that uh, let him act. Just let him be an actor. Yeah, there's also one... Wait, what was that one he was in with Tom Selleck in Australia? Oh, Quickly Down Under. That's what it is, yeah. He was a villain in that, too. Uh, and to see him shift from, like, German to, uh, like, kind of a... Uh, terrible American, uh, plain American accent, you know, and Die Hard after, like, looking around, and then he sees Bruce Wells, and he's like, oh, God, no, no. <laughs> Little to know that he was actually the villain the whole time. 
Uh, you know what's uh, funny is I'm looking at this and uh, Don Johnson was offered this role and he turned it down and you gotta believe he's kicking himself. Thank you. It's like what was I thinking? Thank you, Don Johnson. <laughs> I actually quite like Don Johnson. Don Johnson made one of the best cop movies that nobody's ever seen. It's called Dead Bang, based on a true story about a cop who is taking on the militia, who is uh, doing a bunch of just basically horrible racial murders, and he's trying to hunt them down. It's based on a true story. It's fan fucking tastic you have to find it well it's definitely something that would be relevant to today yes definitely it stands up more now than i think it did back then and it's from one of the greatest action directors of all time john frankenheimer and seriously this movie i yeah. it, it's i i would say this i will bet everything i am on the fact that don johnson should have been at least nominated for an oscar his performance is just phenomenal he is i will say this don johnson was great in comedies i loved him in eastbound and down as a uh... Danny McBride's father. <laughs> yeah, very versatile actor. Just never really broke out of his Miami Vice uh, mold. Oh yeah, or those like rolling up the, rolling up the uh, freaking blazer sleeves too. Let's not forget that big fashion statement in the eighties. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, back to this. Hold what on, sorry. Hell was that? The song "More Bounce to the Ants." Hold on. Okay. Okay, uh, you know what? When I heard that music, <laughs> I thought it was Argyle. I think you were playing a clip from Argyle sitting in the limousine while he's waiting for John McClane. <laughs> I was like, that kid was ha Argyle was like having the time of his life. Oh yeah, he in that no limo. Idea what was going on? Oh, I know. Like, what was it? Like a Christmas party or like a New Year's party? Yeah, I believe it was a Christmas party. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Christmas. That's right. It was company Christmas, and then. Let's see. Yeah, it took place in L in L A. Right. And oh wait, who else was who else was it? Um. Well, Hart Bachner's in it, and he's that little uh, the slime ball with the beard, and he's like Hans Bobby, <laughs> thinking he can talk his way out of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, yeah, that oh dude, that little freaking you know smooth talk smooth operator asshole trying to hit on his wife. Yeah. Or and how about, how of course, Carl, Carl the Behemoth. Alexander Godunov, one of the most terrifying villains of all time. Oh, good God, yes. It's like you'd think he was dead, you know, just from hanging there, and then boom. Oh, no, here he is. And then everybody just unloads on him. Uh, yeah, and you can't actually, deny no, um, the appeal of Reginald Bell Johnson as uh, Lieutenant Powell. He really uh, anchors the movie, and nobody really gives him credit for it. No, of course not. I mean, come on. He was the one who believed in John McClane. He was his, he was his rock. He was helping him out through that situation. You know? Yeah. And then, of I, course, I there was loved, fucking his boss. There was a thing for a while. Whenever I invited a new friend onto Facebook, I would always add that clip with um, John McClane as he's shooting out the window. And he goes, welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> oh, I know. That I thought was hilarious. It's like, oh, jeez. Like a dead body just falls right on him. And then everybody unloads on him. Yeah. You know that guy who, uh, that he, what was that guy's name who was, you know, pretty much pretending to be the security doorman. That guy looked a lot like Huey Lewis. Yes, he did. <laughs> was that a... I, I, the very first time I saw Die Hard, I thought it was Huey Lewis. I was like, oh, I, his eyes look terrible, but, you know, uh, I guess right. he's a bad guy now. Uh, uh, what about um, Al Young? He's the guy that's oh, down yeah. there with him. He was like in every action movie in the 80s, even early 90s. Was, it was not a good action movie unless he showed up. I know. I was like, I mean, even in Big Trouble in Little China, you know some, okay, him swinging around, uh, freaking 
swinging around a cleaver in the alleyway. I'm like, oh, when you see this guy, you know shit's about to go down. <laughs> Have you ever seen the Brandon Lee movie Rapid Fire? Uh, I think so. He is one of the main villains in it, going up against Brandon Lee, and they have a fight sequence at the end of the movie that is just so well done. Yes, it's a little choreographed, but since they're two masters, it doesn't feel fake. Of course, yeah, Brandon Lee, you know, kind of taking up his father's footsteps, but I don't think ever being, like, being able to touch that skill level. No, it's, but, uh, but that, you know, we should, someday we should do a dedicated episode to him, so we talk about The Crow and Rapid Fire and Showdown Low Tokyo. Oh, yeah. I'm, and it's also a good Dolph Lundgren film, too. Yep. Yeah, dude, I'm definitely I'm definitely down to do that. We gotta do that next time. The, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> what's, your, what's your favorite sequence in this movie? In this one, I would have to say it was when I think it was like when one of the one of my favorite sequences was like, you know, Hans and, you know, John McClane meeting, you know, Hans pretending to be a civilian. Yeah. And oh, then, of God, course, that scene is so good. Bill Clay. Yes, it is. Bill Clay, yeah, Bill Clay, that's my name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I'm like, jeez. Oh, man. And then, of course, I think there's the one scene where he's underneath the table, and then that one, it's the one, it's the body that uh, John McClane throws out the building. Yeah, like <clears> the <throat> one who goes, buddy, when you get the chance, you better shoot or whatever, and he's like, um, shooting from the top of the table. He's like, uh, it was something like, hey, pal, or whatever, and he goes to load his gun or whatever, and John just opens up on him. Boom, 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 boom. And then he goes, good advice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. You know, I realized he did the same thing in Sin City. Did he? Like, near the end of the movie. Yeah, near the end of the movie, when he, he gets shot in the arm, and then the two guards come up, and it's like, don't, don't give him a chance. Perforate the fool. And then he turns around, guns blazing. And then after that, he just says, good advice. <laughs> I never even noticed that, huh? Yep. Anyway, so I think that was one of my favorite sequences. And then the ending, you know, when he's like about to rescue his wife, the roof's blown up, all the civilians are safe, and then he's like coming out with the assault rifle, kind of walking kind of awkwardly because yeah. of the damage. And then, you know, shoots Huey Lewis. And then he shoots Huey Lewis. That he, <laughs> I don't know what his real name is, but know, we're gonna I call know, him I that. Should, I should know. So that's how we identify him. <laughs> and then, of course, or turns out, you know, drops his drops his machine gun, and then you know puts his hands up, and then it's like, oh shoot, he has his handgun tapped to his back. She, tries, you know, shoots the other henchman. Hans Gruber goes out flying out the window, about to drag his wife down, and then the slow motion falling sequence. Of Alan Rickman. I usually hate slow-mo, but it really works in this movie. Yeah, I know. It's like, God, time has to free... Like, time... I think everything is just kind of flooding to Hans. It's like, oh, shit. I'm gonna fucking die. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, My favorite is actually the moment right before that with him jumping off, hitting the window, and flying back in. It's, it's so much about timing and the editing and the whole sequence. It just makes it so insanely exciting. And after all that... He, he lands, and he's and it's pulling him off. He's got to get that thing off his waist. And not only that, oh, like, oh guess what? The, the elevator lands, and it explodes. It's just the whole thing is nuts. That's right, because it had C4 in it. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah, that was pretty fucking... Yeah, that was one of the best man. things ever. Yeah, it was. And, who God, those FBI agents? Oh, my God, they were straight fucking assholes. Yeah. Just and like then it got, on, ain't it? I was in the fourth grade. <laughs> <the> asshole. <laughs> Yeah, no, and then oh god, Rick Dukeman. 
freaking straight up. He was, uh, you know, the little. Ace Rick Dukeman, like, man. Yes. Yes. He was like the one, the electrician trying to cut the power. Be like, hey, no, I got the FBI and the cops on my ass. What do you want me to do? <laughs> oh, man. No, it was a pretty intense scene. And I love how the. I will say this. I'm glad the FBI agents put um, Paul Gleason in his fucking place. Little no asshole. Shit. Fucking shit. Worm. Wait, what was his name in uh, Breakfast Club? I keep forgetting the teacher's name. Oh my god, we should know this. I know it's not Wormer. That was Animal House. Can I tell you the truth? I've only seen Breakfast Club twice. Oh well. Once when I was in high school, and once about I don't know ten years ago. Right here, I could always I'll look it up eventually. Okay. See, it'll probably come back to me. But yeah, no. And then it was a happy ending. You know, John McClane finally meets. You know, what was was the lieutenant's name again? Lieutenant Powell. Lieutenant Powell, he finally meets Lieutenant Powell, and there's such rejoicing, everybody's happy, and then all of a sudden, nope, Carl's still alive. Cowboy! Looking Pulling like out the a, big gun. Looking and then, like a Frankenstein monster. Just, uh, oh, pretty freaking nuts. Oi. Oi. So that brings oh, that to an end, and who knew that the movie would continue? There's so many sequels, and none of them were like direct-to-video. It's, uh, I think it's because while Die Hard opened kind of low, I think it opened at like $7 million in third place, it stuck around the whole summer, but it was when it hit video, and HBO is when things went supernova, and all of a sudden they're rushing to get part two done, and I remember reading about it saying it was so insanely difficult that they were going around the world chasing snow, like they were just trying to find snow before summer hit, and they found themselves up like... Canada trying to get the last of the snow so they could film, and then the rest of it they had to do later in you know on a on a set. Oh, of course, yeah. I still think Die Harder is one of the laziest subtitles ever. It is. That is actually one of the dumbest and cheesiest like titles ever. I'm like I didn't I don't even remember that one too much. I know I think Robert Patrick was one of the villains. Yes, that's the and, first time I saw Robert Patrick. And then there was Jurgen Prochnow that they almost released. At the end of the movie, but then, of course, the plans are awry, the villain's lost, and then, boom, he gets locked back up. Jurgen Prochnow, are you thinking of Air Force One? I think so. Damn yeah. it. There, there, there was hostage situations. I was confused. <laughs> the, uh, it's uh, Franco Nero. Django himself. Oh. Eagle Nest. Oh. Eagle Nest. So, I can't remember what, what the other part was. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, of course, and Dick was in that too. William Atherton. Yes. So uh, and, some, some of the stuff in the Adler. sequel, uh, trying to connect the, the two movies sometimes felt a little forced. Having him there felt a little forced. Having Powell there felt a little forced. But he only does a cameo. So that, that that's okay. But um, a lot of repetition in this one. It's a lot of the same plot. And this is back in the day when sequels were very close to being the same as the original with slight tweaks. And that's why sequels didn't do very well. They didn't really advance any. And right. uh, it does hurt the sequel a bit. Yeah. John Leguizamo was also in that for a bit. Yeah, yeah he played Burke. And who else was in there? Uh, oh, yeah, John Amos. Yeah, Dennis Franz. Who's the guy who just died? He was a, uh, Fred Dalton Thompson. Fred, Dal uh, Fred Thompson. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, oh Freddy. And uh, William Sadler, who is one of my favorite actors, he plays Colonel Stewart who a lot of people know from uh, the TV show Roswell. He is the president in the Marvel Universe. 
And uh, yes, he is. Yeah, he's a he's a really great actor who uh, always shows up, does his job. Uh, he's starred in some stuff, but he's always been kind of a, a high level character actor for most people. And I personally, of course, as a kid, I personally loved him for Bill and Ted too. Yes, the Grim <laughs> Reaper, Reaper is his finest role ever. Uh, I burned lots of calories doing reaping. My butt looks fantastic. <laughs> you might be a king or a little street sweeper, but sooner or later you'll dance with the Reaper. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and then he turned out to be the bass player for that band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then of course John Amos. Like, what has he not been in? Oh shit! Uh, of course, everybody knows him from um, Beastmaster. He was fantastic in that, and then he was in the TV show Good Times. He's one of those guys that always shows up, does exactly what's necessary. He's fantastic. And, oh gosh, Coming to America, we cannot forget that. He played Cleo McDowell. That's right. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. They're not from McDonald's, are they? <laughs> His place is called <laughs> McDowell. Pretty much ripping him off. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, no, like I said, that, yeah, it was, it, you know, part two did feel a little lazy, but part three kind of comes around and brings it to a whole new level. We get yeah. Jeremy Irons as the villain, you know, pretty much just talking the whole time. It was more vocal first. And then we finally get to physically see him and he turned out to be Hans Gruber's brother. I mean, it was kind of a, it was kind of a win-win situation for Hans for the, at least for his plan. Yeah. Not only was it to get some revenge and on McLean and distract him, but it was also to, you know, steal from the treasury. Do you think that, which is the weaker sequel, two or three? I'd probably have to say part two. Part three only bugs me because they seem to be constantly yelling at each other and it starts to get on my nerves. But the intricacies of what goes on in Die Hard 3 is way more than I expected. Yeah, no, it was definitely great. But, you know, it's Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, you had to expect him to yell at him. Yeah. It's like, it was a, it's like, hey, easy, hombre. He's like, why are you talking to me? Why are you saying Spanish things? Like, because your name, because your name, Jesus, isn't that your name? No, it's, they were, they were saying Jesus. They were saying, hey, Zeus, as in Father of Apollo, as in I could shove a lightning bolt all the way down your ass from Mount Olympus. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, that one had the most, that one definitely, I thought, had the most humor. It was so entertaining to yeah. watch just to see these two bicker and argue with each other. And then, of course, you also had, you know, great, you know, supporting cast from Graham Greene, Joe, who played, of course, Joe Lambert of yeah, yeah. uh, the NYP squad, you know, the bomb squad, it trying to discover, you know, bummed, which air. It kind of bummed me that he was no longer with his wife. Like, all that stuff that they did in the first two movies wore off, but it also is a reality that some relationships, just as much as you love each other, it's still toxic. It, it, it just can't hold it together. Exactly. And, uh, and then, you know, at the end, after, you know, going through all those different locations in the city, trying to defuse the bombs, playing the mind games, then finally finding out who he is, and then suddenly, boom, just this one little thing, this one little pill bottle is what led to, you know, Hans's location, or Hans's brother's location. Yeah, it's funny, it's, it is a, it's a, uh, Simon, it's a true sequel, yeah. or a true trilogy, because they wrap up everything, it's connected to the first, it grabs bits and pieces from the second, but truly it wraps up everything that's been building up to that point. And any sequels after that just feel almost unnecessary so hollow. if you think of it from a triptych point of view. I know. Pretty much, yeah. Although I did like seeing... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I did like seeing Mary Elizabeth Winstead in the fourth movie play his daughter. Yeah. Well, let's you know, let's, let's finish the third one before we get to the fourth. 
I honestly thought that was a much better sequel than part two. And like I said, it you know brought me to Samuel L. Jackson. Well, no, actually, no, Juice did. And then this, you know, kind of made me appreciate him. I thought it was funny. Yeah, because I was young. Oh, I was young. I saw that movie. See Paul Fiction for a while, huh? Yeah. Uh, I was like a little kid. My parents anything. (laughs) Here's the funny thing is this script was originally meant for a sequel to Rapid Fire. Even though Rapid Fire itself was not that big of a hit, uh, they thought they had some potential for a sequel. So they bought the script Simon Says for it. And then when Brandon Lee died, they didn't know what to do with it. And then just found a way to turn this into a third Die Hard. Oh, of course. Well, that's well, I'm glad they did that. I mean, it turned out to be such a huge movie to me. It was like it was a huge movie to me. That's exactly what I thought. I thought it's you know it had that same effect on a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, but then the we series would go. Even though this was the biggest hit of the year, it made three hundred and fifty million dollars worldwide. And in fact, uh, if I remember correctly, that was the record for international box office. And it would be another what twelve years before we saw a sequel, which seems excessively long time. But Bruce Willis was on a big upswing, and his career was doing very well. And why why do another sequel where he's going to get the shit beat out of him unless he needed to? Oh, yeah, you're right. It does make sense. All right. So after all these years, we waited for Die Hard. Uh, no, Live for Your Die Hard. Live for Your Die Hard. Yeah. I almost said that backwards. And to me, uh, this sounds insane. A lot of people disagree with me. Live for Your Die Hard is the best sequel, in my opinion. I will say, like, the action was kind of ridiculous. Oh, it's like full near... cartoon. It is outrageous, but it's so creative, so clever. I know, so many legs and pelvises should have been shattered and people should not have been able to <laughs> yes. walk after some of that stuff. Like that one lady, the um, I forget her name. She's that one villain. She was the operator, oh, you know, talking to all those yes. hackers and all those people. I can't remember her name right now. Let me look it up. Um, but there is no reason why she survived as long as she did because she got the fuck beat out of her. I know. Especially getting hit by a car, you should have been, you definitely should have been crushed and dead. Right then and there. Maggie Q, that was her name. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he bounces off very well with Justin Long, I thought. And I thought Timothy Oliphant was the best villain since uh, Hans. You really get... Oh, he's not God. just a generic face. Though, I'll say this. The movies themselves are not known for having lazy villains. Oh, no, definitely not. I will, I will say that much. They all had great villains. I mean, like I said, two was the laser one. But Bill Sadler was definitely like a highlight. Yeah. Uh, definitely a highlighted villain. But, like I said, to me, I'd have to give it to, you know, Simon Gruber, because Jeremy Irons definitely has that bravado. He's an Academy Award-winning actor. He he knows what he's doing. And, plus, I think what I like is also the whole legacy thing, the whole legacy thing, you know, going back to the beginning, you know, going going full circle, you know, being, you know, being Han's brother, getting revenge. Mm -hmm. I like, I sometimes like, I mean, it's a little cheesy, but I like plots like that. But it wasn't full-on just all about John McClane. Like, that wasn't the main objective. That was just a little... That was pretty much just a bonus yeah, for him. I, I, I thought the scope on Live Free or Die Hard was better, and, and, and a lot of stuff fits, whereas some of the stuff in the sequels I just wasn't satisfied with. Uh, I don't know. Live Free or Die Hard just is the best sequel, and it finally moves on so you get to know his kids. And uh, yeah. that was something I was interested in finding out. Yeah. He did have two children. I remember him having two daughters and then a son later. Two daughters? I don't remember this. Yeah, yeah, I remember the first one. I thought he had two daughters. Uh, I'm pretty sure he had a, a son and a daughter. 
Hold on, I have to check. I don't know. I remember seeing the photo, and one of them looked a little too. Oh, here, hold on. It's okay. Well, let's. Uh, I gotta Google this. I gotta Google this. Damn it. <laughs> That's oh, okay. Man, well, I don't want dead air. It's fine. You can look it up later. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the Die Hard series. Uh, I, of course, the first one being the best. A trend setting saying that Die Hard Anna was used over and over. We had Die Hard on a boat, which was under siege. Die Hard on a plane, which was Pastor 57. Uh, <laughs> die Hard um, in a bathroom, which I believe was The Shining. Uh, die Hard in my pants, which is a great porno. Uh, starring Bruce Willie. And, uh, <laughs> uh, what is it? A Do die hard on a boat or a die hard on, um, a die hard on a, a bus, which is speed. Yeah. So it starred Bruce Willie and did it start his, um, on off screen wife, Do Me More? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, you know, you, you were right. It was a boy and a girl. I was stupid. I'm an idiot. I didn't even drink. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so that Still is the Die Hard series. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's only four parts. I'm not going to even explain if there's a fifth part because we all hope it de- it doesn't exist. I don't want to talk about it. Do you want to talk about it? I don't want to talk about part five. It was cool to know his son, but... I guess, yeah, but not, it's it was... painful. Not, I don't care about anything that happens. I have never watched the Die Hard movie and looked at my phone and been like, oh, this is still going? This is still on? Yeah. I know. I felt the same way with Sin City 2. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, anyway. exactly. Bruce Willis and his movies are terrible now. And you can tell that he was just lazy as shit during the fifth one. No one cared about the script. No one cared about what was going on. I Not one thing was interesting about the fifth one. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I was. I mean, even my friend Jessica, she can withstand action movies. They're not her forte. Yeah. She can enjoy some. But at this one, she's just like, I thought it was just awful like olympus has fallen it was almost as bad it was almost as bad as that no i like <laughs> olympus has fallen in comparison to this die hard the olympus has fallen is the script that die hard should have been uh i may be in a small group that's a fan but i, I really like olympus has fallen uh that die hard just was garbage well yeah olympus has fallen was actually better who am i thinking who am i kidding gosh yeah, i'm just trying White to House i'm just trying to give die hard credit yeah, White House Down is better than the last Die Hard. Oh, God. And I've been told that they're going to wrap it up with uh, Die Hard Year One or something like that, where he gets honored at Nakatomi Plaza for the 30th anniversary of him saving, you know, all those people. And then it's going to start yeah. with him and end with him, but in the middle, it'll go back to his first, like, big adventure. Oh. Like, do you mean back to the very first movie nope we're gonna go all the way back to when he was like 22 first year as a cop oh shit huh who would play him who would play a young bruce willis are they gonna get jgl and just you know give him some prosthetic makeup (laughs) oh no uh maybe uh, jake gyllenhaal seems like he'd be fun but uh maybe he doesn't have the same attitude they're gonna have to find a fresh face that's what they're gonna have to do they're gonna have to find somebody that we don't already know yeah that would be pretty that would be great to see Hopefully not Taylor Lautner. That I mean, I don't. I mean, let's just. I don't think he could actually pull that off, considering his last action flick. You know, during the Twilight years. Right. Yeah. Let's not even bring that into it. I kind of hate you a little bit for even thinking of that. Ugh, jerk. Good. Good. Use your hatred. Let it flow through I you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's oh, it with God. us on uh, the Die Hard series. 
Uh, what do you think we should discuss next? We've been talking about Phantasm, but you have trouble getting access to those movies. Actually, I kind of have trouble finding yeah. Part Four. What uh, What do you want to call? It? What do you want to do next? Let's see. What other franchises do I like that we had talked about? I mean, how about, how about we're, we're talking about talking about um, you know action movies. I mean, there's really not much a necessity to bring up Expendables, is there? Uh, I love the Expendable series, so don't discredit it yet. But oh, hey, let's do Lethal Weapon next. Oh no. Let's do Lethal Weapon. Yes. While we're on the subject of action movies, let's discuss Lethal Weapon. Heck, we should even do X-Men sometime. I'd love to discuss that. Yeah, let's... Uh, let's... Or did we already do that? All right. So, no, we have not done it yet. So next week, we'll, we'll discuss the Lethal Weapon flicks. All right. And oh, speaking what? of X-Men, quick question. What? Did you, ever, did you know that there was a rogue cut of Days of Futures Past? Yes, but I haven't watched it. I... Hold up. I'll have to tell you something about it later. Okay. Everybody, this is a bad habit of ours. We have a terrible job winding up episodes. So this is Michael saying be excellent to each other. And Jacob, send us out. I'm a saying good luck, you guys. And yippee Motherfucker! <laughs> good night, everyone. everybody welcome to the first episode of comics on infinite earths i'm your host michael my co-creator and co-host william what's up hey there everything's going very good so this is the first episode of a series where we're going to discuss uh big events in comic books and then sometimes we'll segue off into little mini-sodes where we discuss like maybe one particular issue that was pivotal pivotal Pivotal. <laughs> I don't know what words mean. Uh, or we'll just just pick some random stuff here and there. To maybe we found something awesome that you should read and you know give you uh, a description of what it's about and stuff like that. Uh, right now we're just kind of feeling the show out. Um, so you might hear some episodes where it's not me and you. It'll be William with someone else discussing a series, and then you know me with someone else. Or hell, if we find two people that talk about comics that are awesome, I'll, I'll carry your episode. I'll put it on the show. And uh, so we're gonna start right now with a very big series, probably one of the biggest events in comic book history, and it's the basis for the title of this show, Crisis on Infinite Earths, which ended 30 years ago. And for me. Um, it's probably my favorite event. Uh, how do you feel about Crisis? Uh, I feel kind of weird about it uh, because I heard about it so much in my life, but I I don't think I ever read it until just recently. So I have a, a very probably different viewpoint on it than you do. So this could be interesting. Yeah, I think it's funny because <laughs> when we were kids, um, Crisis always seemed to be on the top of a lot of the comics that you would get from DC. But you're right, you never got the miniseries, and I only picked up issue 8, uh, The Death of the Flash, just on some random visit to books, comics, and things. If you are not from Fort Wayne, you will not understand the uh, emotional impact I feel every time I talk about books, comics, and things. Uh, is it still in business? I haven't been home in 13 years. Is it still around? Uh, yes, they still have two locations. Two? They've kind of like changed ah! their... Oh! Oh yeah, did they only have one when you no, left? No, no, I'm just I, I assumed by now that okay. one of them would have gone out of business, but both are still going. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, surprisingly, uh, there's, they're both still there. They've kind of changed themselves a little bit. Now it's they more just call it BCT, yeah. uh, like instead of Mook's Comics and things. But yeah, they're still, still going pretty good, I guess. I remember they were starting to change their focus in the 90s to Magic the Gathering and other stuff like that. Like they'd open up a back room that was a where like it used to be their storage room. And there'd be a bunch of tables there, and that's where kids would hang out and play games. And if you picked up a comic or two, great. That helped uh, boost uh, interest in reading. But when we went, they had just moved to that that new location. They were in some dumpy... Remember that dumpy mall that they were in that nobody could ever find the store? Like, it was in some off little corner kind of thing, and you have to go inside, and you're like, where is this place? Yeah, yeah, that was like Westland Mall, and it was, yeah, it was kind of in a basement... And I don't think anybody really knew about it hardly, unless they looked for it. They uh, and then, yep. um, then uh, they moved to a normal strip mall out there in front with a huge sign, you know, and everybody could find it. And it was right when they first moved in. The mm-hmm. store was probably about a quarter of the size that it is now. I- I'm assuming since I haven't seen it forever. But I remember going <laughs> through the bins, and they had only put out about ten bins of comics. They had literally just opened a new location, and I saw the flash. It's you know uh, on the front of that issue, looking um, at some sort of omnipresent uh, person uh, in the shadows, and I was like, I gotta get this, and the Flash dies in that issue, and but still, it took me another six, seven years to actually get the complete series because it was so expensive. Um, I couldn't read it until it was gathered up in the collected edition. Okay, yeah, and I think I just read uh, some of the crossovers. And I might have read maybe one issue of the series, but yeah, not really. I just uh, I heard a lot about it, but I didn't didn't really get into it. Well, I think you and I were both Marvel people until around eighty six, eighty seven, because I remember I did see mm. Crisis on a few of your comics, but mostly it was when Legends and Millennium you start seeing those tags on the top of the comic that I have memories of you getting DC. Mm. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, yeah, it was, I started out mainly in Marvel. I bought, like, World's Finest with Batman Superman, a couple of those, like, right as the series ended. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I was mostly into Marvel. Um, yeah, I remember I was not very enthused for some reason about the, it seemed like I thought Crisis was, like, probably a, like, sort of almost legendary thing, because it happened right before I really got into comics. But I wasn't enthused about the other ones, like Legends and Millennium and no, stuff. I, I don't was, think a lot of people are. I'm yeah. wondering if we should ever even revisit those. I mean, eventually <laughs> we'll probably run out of things to talk about, and we'll have to. Uh, we'll start talking mm-hmm. about the Atlantis attacks storyline in Marvel and stuff like that. We'll run out of things. Like, mm-hmm. what do we got left? I guess we can talk about U.S. Agent. I don't know. what. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, D-Man. We'll talk about D-Man for a couple of uh, episodes, and then people are like, I'm not going to listen anymore. I want to cancel the series. <laughs> Uh, but you, well, I was just going to say, you recently listened to an audiobook version of Crisis, right? Yeah, I have read the collected edition probably three or four times now, and I decided to go with a different angle. I'm a huge fan of Marv Wolfman, who is the writer of Crisis. He wrote a novelization of it, um, which I could not find, but I found the audiobook from Graphic Audio. If you don't know Graphic Audio, they do old-style radio play adaptions of novels. Sometimes they do the cheap little pulpy ones like Westerns or The Executioner, The Destroyer. Um, but then they have a contract with DC and Marvel, mostly DC. Well, they'll take these major events and they'll make audiobooks out of them. And the audiobook's actually completely from Flash's perspective. And 
it's <clears throat> it's weird because he reconfigured things because it was written after Barry Allen came back, so it tells the story uh, after the comics end, and then it, it fast forwards huh. to two thousand nine, two thousand ten when he came back. So I was a little annoyed by that because it's like rewriting history. If it's going to be an adaptation of Crisis, it should be strictly connected to the comics. But I'm a stickler. So I mean, I'm being kind of anal retentive about that. <laughs> yeah, okay, I can I can see that. Um, but uh, so, like, what are your, what do you like so much about Crisis on Infinite Earths? Um, I don't think I would have appreciated it when I was a child, because, like you said, you were a Marvel person, I was a Marvel person, and, uh, you know, they were edgier and they're hipper, their history wasn't as deep, and to be fair, uh, their history wasn't as cheesy in, in a lot of people's minds. If you look at some of the stuff from before the Silver Age in DC, it's really just like, what? That's insanely stupid. Or just, that, that's, that's for babies. Um, I think that was kind of the mentality of what was going on in the world. Marvel was killing it in sales. Their, their sales were so strong, and the movies were doing or the TV shows were doing well. They, they bought an animation division. All DC had carrying them, basically, was uh, Super Friends in the Superman movie. And I remember reading uh, that their sales plummeted horribly in the late 70s, early 80s. They had to cancel every uh, series they had going. And it was... Um, one of those things where every time I would look at DC outside of the Justice League, that, that, that core seven characters, I wasn't interested because I knew nothing about them, nobody was talking about them, and there was so much history that I was just like, I, I don't know what's going on. It's like 60 years or 50 years here worth of stories that I just I don't get. And I think now the fact that my favorite series in all of DC Comics is Justice Society. Um, because it recognizes the old era, you know, the older heroes, but also connects it to the younger heroes. It's my favorite series just because it's so dense, so layered with uh, complexity, well-written characters, but also the rich, complex, um, the, the, the history of it all. You know, there's so many decades worth of stories that they don't ignore, that they don't throw away. <laughs> For some reason, the rest of DC Comics has no problem throwing away all that history on a regular basis because we have Zero Hour, The yeah. Infinite Crisis, Final <laughs> Crisis. Like every decade, DC goes, mm -hmm. oh, we fucked up. We got a clean house. <laughs> yeah. And, and when you say just the Society of America, are you talking about like uh, the 70s comic or a current version or, or uh, what? Once or just in general? It was the 1998 series, the ones that uh, Jeff Jones was involved in. Um mm. Uh, uh, John, not John Robinson. Uh, I, I can't remember. He wrote Starman. Robinson, James Robinson. Uh, they did a fantastic mm. job. David Goyer wrote on it. Uh, really great writers, really understanding the characters. It wasn't about events. It was just about the mm. people on the team. And that's my favorite. And all those little guys connected to it: Hawkman, Starman, uh, Stars and Stripes. Um, yeah, I could go on and on. It's a huge team. For God's sake, there's like 40 people on each team. Mm -hmm. Um, that's why yeah. I think I like it more. And that's, you know, I were talking about Young All-Stars. Young All-Stars is a spinoff mm. of that, that world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it was, um, it seemed like it was kind of for adults or something more than the other versions of, yeah. of that team. Um, okay, so, so Crisis, by the way, was, was the first event like this, right, where they were trying to consolidate their their storylines and heroes and and uh because uh technically secret wars came out before this 
But they didn't do anything like that, did they? No, it was uh, just a big, big story. I've always wondered if Secret Wars was a toy line launch. It, it seemed like it didn't have a whole lot of ramifications post the miniseries. I mean, yes, uh, it introduced Venom to the world, but that's about it that I can remember. Um, there was mm-hmm. Contest of Champions before that, too, where a bunch of heroes got together and fought. Uh, but but uh, Crisis is the first one that it wasn't just a celebration of the previous 50 years. It was a way of mm-hmm. DC Comics going, look, guys, everybody has this extremely convoluted timeline. Their origins are all over the place. We don't know what's going on. The fans don't know what's going on. Let's clean this up and reboot it for the next generation. Mm-hmm. That's why people like you and me eventually got into DC Comics is because they reintroduced everybody. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Although I was confused when I first got into DC Comics because I both caught the tail end of the previous stuff and then I tried to start reading new stuff. And I was like, why is there Superman number one, you know, in 1987? Yeah. And why movie. is he different? <laughs> uh, go ahead. Um, no, I just remember seeing that when John Burns Man of Steel launched. I remember you and I were together when we saw that at the store or whatever, and we're like, I, I thought Superman was, like, on issue 500. What's going on? Why is he on issue 1? And it wasn't until later that you would truly understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so, so by the way, the, the collector in me kind of recoils at these ideas. Uh, it's like I understand for each generation, I guess, or for the kids, maybe how this is a good thing and they can have like a jumping a better jumping on point but the collector in me like wants all the series to be at like issue 700 and something i I like that continuity and i feel like that's what brings collectors into at least like the back issue market is is because there's that continuity and they want to be part of it and they want to read all those old issues yeah i wonder if comic stores were pissed like we have these bins filled (laughs) with old comics now people aren't going to give a crap great Yes, that that's how that's what I was afraid of, um, and I think I think that did play out for a while. But I think now it's kind of come full circle to where people are so used to it, and there's like, ugh, I get it. There's like ten different versions of Flash and all these different new continuities, um, but they still have reverence for the original. They still want to go back and read, you know, the original uh, run that ended at issue three fifty and. And, uh, you know, and, like, they want to read the the original Daredevil series, the original Captain America, or at least I, I feel like there's much more interest in those than almost anything since then, which is kind of funny. Uh, a lot of it does have to do with what era you're introduced to. I am post-crisis mm-hmm. to zero hour. I have a lot of interest in that <laughs> era. But, uh, you know, actually, actually, post-zero hour is pretty great, too. It's just recently where I just got exhausted. We're like... The new 52, and we're like, I have to buy an issue every single week uh, on top of what I'm already buying. And then, like, <laughs> they introduced that miniseries, uh, it was in 2010. They're like, well, we're going to launch 52 comics this month. Then next month, we're going to launch yep. another 13, 13, 13. And you're just like, you're exhausted. They're, they killed themselves by going with too many series. Whatever happened to the um, mm-hmm. the anthology comic, uh, you know, like DC Presents or what's the, it was Marvel Comic Presents, right? Where they would have like four stories in one comic. Uh, so you got used to a character to see if they were popular enough to carry yeah. a whole series. Yeah, they don't really do that anymore. Um, 
It also feels like the art of the miniseries uh, is kind of dead, too, because are there many miniseries these days other than major events? Um, I'm yeah, not sure. you know, I was thinking about that. I, um, I was looking at some comic series. Like, remember when Nightcrawler had, like, a four-issue miniseries or Dazzler? You know, mm-hmm. they, would, they would try it out first to see if there was interest to go beyond that one storyline. But now it just seems like mm-hmm. you're right. They don't. They ditch those. They don't even do the 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 one shots. They don't do the special graphic novels. It's all just uh, we we signed everybody to a year contract for twelve issues. And uh, oh, uh, guess what? Issue six was horrible. Uh, the sales were awful. So we're just going to cancel at issue eight. So the storyline will die right there. You'll be in the middle of reading a comic and it'll never end. Or, or and these people they did this hard work and you'll never see it because they're focused on the bottom line. And a lot of that bottom line is covered by these major events that makes you buy every single part of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do feel like that that hurts a lot of uh, a lot of storylines. The the way yeah they have to it, everything has to be wrapped up or just discontinued whenever they start their next their next big thing. Yeah, uh, comic books, um, they say, is a writer's medium, but it's not very friendly to the freedom of the writer because of these events. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, independent comics are so much more friendlier these days, probably, uh, to the writer. Yeah, well, they don't have to stop. Well, I was like, I had six months planned for this storyline. Now I have to condense it into two for the next event? Damn it. <laughs> yep. You know what's funny? Is we actually uh, talked about Crisis. Like the actual comic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was I was gonna just try to get back to that, and um, so re so reading this, I I was amazed at like how slow it seemed like at least the first half to two thirds of it went, and it just wasn't what I expected because I don't know if many people who read it you know decades ago remember this, but it really seemed like the first like five or six issues were just the monitor sending them around from place to place fighting these like shadows yeah, that shadow we didn't yeah we didn't know what the shadow demons were it it all felt very pointless i must say to watch them do that over and over just issue after issue is very very odd to me um, it's a little yeah. tedious it's uh, it makes you wait yeah. it's a big mystery of what is actually going on I do not believe the audiences yeah. now would tolerate it, but, you know, things were different back then. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess there were other mysteries going on, too, but they all seemed like a little bit parallel because uh, aside from the demons, then they started just, like, sending them from, like, planet to planet, and it wasn't clear what they were supposed to be doing. It was like they were they were sort of supposed to be attacking the antimatter that was destroying the planets, but they never really did anything to it it always kind of just had its way so then i was like well why is he having them do that over and over um it was kind of like a series of 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 um but maybe it was supposed to make us feel uh the sense of drama and stuff that like it seemed hopeless i guess they were really driving that home they're like look at what's happening to your universe it's all going away there, there is a moment in the audiobook that's not in the comic. I, at least I don't remember it being in the comic where they're all together and they're like, why didn't you just gather all the biggest powers in the universe? You know, why not grab the strongest? And they, uh, the Harbinger explains the anti-monitor, sorry, the monitor um, calculated ahead of time who had certain abilities that could work, you know, together with someone else. 
each one had a different mm. skill and ability that would work against the shadow demons or whatever goal that they had to battle. And, you know, that's why you've got mm -hmm. oddballs. Like, the blue, uh, the blue Beetle is just a tech guy. You know, he has agility and technology. So he always seemed out of his mm -hmm. normal element. Uh, you got Psycho Pirates, which, um... Yeah. That is one of the strangest ones to add. Have you even seen Psycho Pirates since this series? Because I don't, I don't think I've ever seen them again. Uh, yeah. There, there are people in here that have pretty major roles, like, like him, that, uh, I don't think I remember outside of, of this series. Um... I don't remember him. <laughs> and there's a it's, just, it's a, it's a weird um, group of superheroes. Part of it makes me think mm -hmm. that it was because most of them weren't even involved in a regular series at that time. It was just easy to manipulate those characters. Like, what are they attached to? Mm -hmm. Nothing. They're not on any teams or, you know, whatever. Okay, cool. Let's use them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was also the fact that DC had just bought the Charlton characters. And they had to find a way to introduce a lot of those guys into their world. So you got Blue Beetle, you got Captain Adam, The Question, uh, Peacemaker, and I think a couple others that no one cared about. Um, yeah. It, it has so many characters going on all at once. It's a little bit of a headache unless you really know the DC Universe. And even then, it's it's a bit of a, a, a battle to remember who everybody is. Yeah, and, and I, at least reading it currently, I, I felt the hand of the creator... A little too much, uh, you know. It just seemed too obvious that um, why, yet like the Charlton characters were there, and I, I'm thinking though, as a child or teenager, I probably wouldn't have had nearly so much of that, and I just would have been excited by yeah. seeing so many different heroes. But now, yeah, it's it's very obvious. There's that one character it, in here that's yeah. so bizarre that. Um... I have such a fascination with him, and I know he's not a very popular character, but it's Blue Devil. I absolutely love Blue Devil, mm. and it's it's so much fun just seeing him in this huge event. Yeah, I actually, he was one of the characters I enjoyed the most, and I kind of felt like I hadn't seen him a whole lot other than this, but uh, but I liked him. Yeah, he, he was he was part, pretty interesting. Um, oh, man, I can't remember the name team, but he's part of a supernatural team that fought the mm. Spectre not that long ago, and they stayed as a team. And it's like, um, I want to say it's the spec. I'm going to look this up. The, keep going. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, I was just going to say that um, I wonder, you know, Marv Wolfman's, ex Marv Wolfman's explanation for this kind of hinges on the idea that he felt like they needed to do this to for the current readers to give them a jumping on point and all that. But um, I, I feel like that justification is, is probably gone now that now they do it like every three years. Um, yeah, that's not a new generation, guys. That's, that's just a few years, yep. and your readers haven't changed that much. So, uh, But I think, what is it these days? It's more like their sales start waning after yep, each major exactly. event. And they're just trying to get it back to, to where it was. Okay. Okay, now I, I realize uh, it's, uh, it's called Shadow Pact. It was part of the Day of Vengeance miniseries. And uh, it's Enchantress, Ragman. Now, that's deep diving into some characters that no one knows about. <laughs> Detective Chimp, yeah. Nightshade, Nightmaster, Blue Devil, Phantom Stranger. I thought someone else joined the team later, but it's uh, the darker heroes. That's the movie that uh, Guillermo del Toro was trying to pitch, Justice League Dark. It was going to be those characters handling all the, the weirdo stuff in the DC Universe. 
Okay. And what did you say the name of that team was? Shadow, Shadow Pack? Pack. It only lasted two years. Okay. It is absolutely fantastic. I don't know if you know who Bill Willingham is. That's weird. Will Willingham? Yes, I do. Uh, uh, fables and yes, such. Yeah. He created Shadow Pact. It's fantastic. Just it's, okay. a, it's a niche audience kind of comic book, and people just didn't get into it, but I thought it was fascinating. Okay, yeah, I wrote that down here. Because uh, I loved um, Phantom Stranger and Ragman, even, yes. uh, as bizarre as he is. So, yeah, I think I would like that. Well, since they weren't very popular characters, they weren't even on the C list. You know, you're talking lower than that. <laughs> he could do whatever he wanted to. No one got in his way. And that's what really makes for an exciting comic is when they have free reign to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So, uh, brings us back to Crisis is Marv Wolfman had to be very careful with, like, a thousand characters. And, you know, it does stifle the story a bit. But I'm stunned that DC said, yeah, let's kill off Supergirl. Let's kill off... Uh, Dove from Hawk and Dove, let's kill off the Flash. You know, all these characters just dying left and right. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that that made it, like, a really major event, um, and also, they thought they had good reasons, like, uh, Marv said that uh, DC decided that they should go back to only one uh, Superman escaping Krypton, only one being escaping like it was in the original, you know, 1939 comic, I guess. Um, though I feel like that's then meaningless because now today again we have like five survivors of Krypton or whatever. So uh, <laughs> it wasn't wasn't that meaningful, but I, I guess it worked for them for, for for a little while at least. I noticed that so, they they, they brought don't back know. they brought back everybody I think from this except for the original Supergirl. It was like no one really liked yeah. it. Yeah, I just like the costume and the name. Let's just keep bringing it. Remember, there was one that was like uh, part of the Death of Superman series, where she was like some sort of weird clay mold thing or something. Like she could, she was like an alien creature that was molded into Supergirl. Uh, yeah, yeah, she was uh, sort of like a scroll in the Marvel universe, um, but uh, yeah, like a DC version of that. I forgot about that. That that was that was really odd. Yeah, yeah, I don't know why they did that. And then there was another Supergirl after that. I think they remade Supergirl like four or five times in the DC universe, which clearly cares that mm -hmm. shows that no one knows what's going on with that character. <laughs> yeah. They do that with Hawkman too. Uh, they kill Hawkman like every other week. <laughs> Funny. Uh, wasn't he at the center of one of the events, or is that incorrect? Um, I was thinking like he be okay. Okay, I was thinking like he he was like the. Oh, I think it was rumored, and then I think it didn't actually happen, like in Final Crisis or something. Uh, well, that I he was going to. That it was supposed to be Captain Adam in Zero Hour, but it leaked, so mm. then it turned into Hawk. Oh, you're thinking of Hawk, <laughs> of Hawk and Dove. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I, yes, you're right. And it's okay. A minor character that no one cares about, and end up being the main villain. Yeah. The biggest events of the nineties. Yeah, that is a bizarre choice. Yeah, I think uh. it's just because of one of those last ditch efforts. Who do we have? We have to go now. Print. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so all these planets that die throughout the course of this with all their groups of heroes and such, so they have brought back pretty much all of them, huh? Yeah, um, they even I'm brought thinking. back the multiverse, you know, they, they did it so they could streamline everybody yeah. into one world, you know, bringing Shazam <laughs> over to the Earth One and Justice Society, lining it up, and there's a couple others, I think, um, Warlord had his own universe, and, uh... You know, any of those mystical, magical ones, yeah. they were all condensed into the Earth one, which makes no sense, because we didn't have magic <laughs> worlds back then, so I'm not sure what they were thinking. Maybe that's why you didn't see a lot of those comics back then. 
uh, Jonah has yeah. to reconfigured into our world in a post-apocalyptic future. <laughs> yeah, I think that that was really dumb. You get a tiny preview of that in this Crisis series, and I didn't enjoy that at all. I, I enjoyed the original Jonah Hex, but I, w- I was not into that. Well, they, uh, have they gone back to Cowboy Jonah Hex yet? Uh, I think oh, they yeah, did yeah, for a yeah. while. Back in the early 2000s, they relaunched Jonah Hex, and it's actually fantastic. Jimmy Palmiotti, who was, I believe, an inker, became the head writer on it, and it's really, really good. Dark. In the movie, uh. Uh, Josh Brolin should have been like that comic, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty light movie, wasn't it? Yeah, and then they, they redid Hawkman's history, and then they put him on an alien planet where, you know, they were like <laughs> a hawk people, not earthlings with mystical wings and, you know, powers and stuff like that. They literally made them a whole alien world. Yeah, I, that was like my impression of them throughout my childhood. I only found out later that there had, there had been the non-hawk, like non-bird Hawkman and such. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so <laughs> I think we're getting a pretty good overview of what happened here. Yeah, it, it, it feels like, such. yeah, it's something that you you could read just as a curiosity because it was such a major event, but its ramifications mm-hmm. are almost dead now. It almost like it doesn't matter. <laughs> a lot of these events don't matter anymore, but they are really good reads. Uh, for George, Perez's yeah. art alone is worth seeing because he's so amazing at that. Yeah, yeah. One thing they said about it was that, like, yeah, he did. He did this. The artwork is is beautiful. It's amazing, and he did so many characters and kind of seemed to get them all right. You know, it, it's yeah, that's pretty awesome. I, in I itself. have a poster of Crisis. Um, it was massive. It was like a banner, like a movie banner. It was so big. <laughs> and it was painted by Alex Ross over George Perez's um, pencils, and I remember just thinking. Oh boy, that's like ten thousand characters. I, I don't even know. There, I mean, everybody was fit on this poster. I don't know how many years it took them to do that. Wow. Uh, so, but you said that they brought back the the multiverse. I, I know that there was a recent event called uh, Multiversity, I believe. So, so they've completely changed their minds on that, huh? I now they're say there's, some, there's, there's gonna be some fanboys freaking out right now because I've fallen severely behind on DC. Um, I actually stopped at the whole Green Lantern story, um, you know, the, the, the Black Lanterns, the rise of all the people back from the dead, mm-hmm. it became like the White Lanterns, um, mm-hmm. uh, Brightest Day is when I stopped, mm-hmm. and I, I've caught a few <laughs> things since then, but for the most part, I got, I got mm-hmm. exhausted, I got tired of all mm-hmm. these major events, so I believe it was Final Crisis, then Blackest Day, which, you know, it turned into this horrible event of all these people dying, uh, mm-hmm. brightest, sorry, blackest night, brightest day is when they brought a lot of people back. Aquaman died and came back yet again. Um, <laughs> and then it became Convergence, I think is the last one, the last major event where they're trying to reconfigure things again. And I'm just, I'm sorry, yeah. dude. I don't know. I don't think anybody at DC Comics knows what's going on right now. They're just grasping <laughs> at straws. That energy that was part of our childhood of anything goes, let's, let's go with some crazy stuff here, is gone. I, I think they're lost. Mm-hmm. I agree, uh, and I have I have gone to comic stores a little bit in the, in the last few months, and I think though they're trying to find their way again because I forget which happened first, convergence or multi the multiversity. But when I saw the multiversity, I was fairly impressed because 
it kind of seemed like DC had had understood once again that actually there were advantages to having all these different dimensions in that you could you could uh, tell just radically different stories than you could otherwise. And I mean, you could have a planet of, I don't know, like robot superheroes with, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but they had like entire uh, dimensions where everyone was a robot. Weird. And another that was all, all monkeys. And they just, they did some really bizarre stuff. But, but I don't know if they got rid of that with Convergence. I, I kind of uh, hope they didn't. That, like that'd be sad. Did. Multiversity ended last <laughs> April, and I know Convergence was uh, after that. Uh, well, you remember oh, Elseworlds? No. Elseworlds was a way of them telling stuff outside of the continuity. Mm-hmm. Yes, I enjoyed those a lot. Uh, th- those were usually in, like, graphic novel form, I believe. Uh, although they did some annuals and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I've I bought several of the graphic novels, and and I thought that was a great idea. And of course, you could do that even if you only have one one universe. That's that's a nice thing about that yeah. because they're just totally imaginary. The uh, the one good thing to come out of Crisis is the fact that they finally put an end to Justice League of America, where it was <laughs> so embarrassing. It was like I think Gypsy uh, uh, Aquaman was their leader, uh, Martian Manhunter, I think kind of it uh plastic mm-hmm. not plastic man elongated man and then you had steel and mm-hmm. vibe and no one cares and no one cares and no one cares <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know why that was i it, it was some kind of derivative thing huh like uh whoever we don't need ends up in the jla or something yeah it was weird it's like none yeah. of the big three none of the, even the big five or six literally it's just aquaman mm-hmm. is the only one who had ever carried his own series and it was just like, it's on fumes. It's like that 70s show after Topher Grace and Ashton Kutcher left the show, where it's just like the other guys who couldn't get a movie deal. You know, it's just, oh, you're exhausting yeah. yourself. Let's let's shut the doors. And when they rebooted, um, now some people are not a fan of the reboot is, um, you know, oh, that's not the core team. They're not that serious. But I absolutely mm. loved the new run when they added, like, Captain Marvel, Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, you know, the Guy Gardner version of Green Lantern. That was my favorite Yes. Movie. Yes, I, I liked that series, too. And I think uh, shortly after that, they did, what, uh, the Justice League Europe? Yeah, that which was, was kind of funny. Uh, title, too. Yeah, and that was, I think, written by Keith Giffen. So it was, it was very funny and, like, much more realistic than most uh, DC comics had been yeah. up until then. So my recommendation uh, is a yes to Crisis. If you're a big fan of DC Comics, you want to dive into the history. If you are a casual, then no. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, anything you want to pitch uh, before we go? Um, I do have my podcast up and running now. I don't think I said that in the last one. Uh, but it's called uh, Comics I Read to You. And it's, it's pretty weird. But uh, I cover some some interesting comics, and I usually make fun of them. So uh, <laughs> give that a listen. It's on iTunes. And uh, you can check all our episodes of uh, the other podcasts that I have going. Uh, I think I might have an addiction. This is literally the fifth like series that I have going at a time. I have a full-time <laughs> job, people. I don't know what the hell I'm thinking. But go to uh, Retro Rocket Entertainment on Facebook. You can find all the shows there. And if you like this uh, show, let us know. Obviously, we're going to continue because we're just that way. <laughs> we're, I'm, just, I'm stubborn, so I'm just going to continue for a while unless people go, uh, shut up, stop talking about comics, you're terrible. 
Um, <laughs> but until then, uh, we're going to keep putting out episodes of... This is called Comics on Infinite Earths. So just remember that title. Share, like, and uh, I don't know what we'll do for the next episode, but probably another major event. And uh, we'll kind of intersperse with some, like, good runs like uh say like a, a run of sandman or uh swamp thing and you know the flash and like real pivotal arcs in anybody's comics i don't know yeah how to close out yeah that sounds good very well. <laughs> all right that's okay michael. i think i think yeah. we got it this is michael saying be excellent to each other william sign us off uh see you guys later and i figured since this is our first episode where we introduce not only ourselves but uh, the DC Universe did a whole bunch of introductions of characters. I figured, why not Faith No More with Introduce Yourself? <laughs>
and Pokemon. Well, Some people are just obsessed yeah. with all, all things Japanese. The one that wasn't, though, that was a phenomenon that I couldn't get away from was, uh, like, the D&D kind of games, but they weren't D&D. They were um, Magic the Gathering being the biggest one, these expensive chase cards, and everybody was like, I spent all my money on this. I'm like, I have food I have to eat. I have to. I have to live. I don't have time to spend, you know, that kind of money on cards. I I work with a guy, and like he had a breakup with his girlfriend, and he's like, man, she's got like, one of my cards. And, like he told me, what are we, what are we talking about? Like one of my Magic the Gathering cards. I was like, okay, I'm like, uh, so what? He's like, so what? It's like four hundred dollars. I was like, what? <laughs> That's insane. A piece of cardboard is that expensive? Right. I mean, I, I understand like how the value of baseball cards. This guy's a Hall of Famer. This is like sixty years old. I understand there's value because it's rare, but these are like, you know, current things and you just like attribute value to it for some, you know, I guess it's rare too. I don't even, I don't really understand that world. Yeah, it's uh, baseball cards and comic books from like the 40s through like the 70s, they weren't considered collectible in any way. It wasn't until the 80s where that became a thing. And so they weren't taken care of. So I can see why a card from 1955 that's in mint condition is worth a crap ton because if you find any, the most of them are probably gonna be like worn or water stained or something. Uh, but then in the 80s, it's like, well, everybody knows it's collectible. Why? There's a million copies out there. Why is everybody going insane about this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember like um, uh, times it would just be like um, like an error that something something that was misprinted wrong that didn't get uh, corrected in circulation. You know what I mean? That someone didn't quality control, and then in fact if that hit the market, and that was like a, a major get. You know what I mean? I love the fact you just said quality control, considering that was the song we just listened to. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. That was subliminally implanted in my brain. Um, well done. I remember there was a baseball card that everybody was chasing. Uh, it was Billy Bean, and I think it said asshole or something on the very bottom of it. Do you no, remember? no. <laughs> Billy Bean was a ball player, but he's from a different a different area from the 70s. But uh, you th- uh, Billy, uh, Billy Ripken, Howard Rip- Ripken's younger brother. Yeah, and um, what he had on the b- bottom of his bat, it said fuckface. Oh, <laughs> that's right, fuckface. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, uh, clearly, somebody was either mad at him or just wanted to pull the ultimate prank, and I think like 60 of them got out there, and then they had to pull them. Well, they, they thought, they didn't think there was that many of them. So it was a 1990 Fleer, and on the bottom of his bat, when he was holding on his shoulder, it said fuckface. But the thing is, there were so many of them, they weren't as rare as some of like the uh, the bars that people like. So they had a black bar to kind of block it out, like center it, and then they had like a gray one. And those that like I think the gray one became even more valuable than the actual card that said "fuck face" because there's so many of them out there. <laughs> so strange. And when yeah. I was a kid, it was only like one baseball card company that was like the thing. It was Tops. Everybody knew Tops, and then became um... well, yeah. well back in the day there was two. There was like Tops and Bowman, and Bowman. Uh, went away and then they came out later as like a retro edition but yeah tops was like the uh tops was like the gold standard for like decades that was yeah. like the only show in town pretty much you know? and then it was fleer upper deck uh score Don Don yeah, yeah. It, was, it went insane in like around 88 89 all of a sudden every single company on the planet wanted to get into the baseball card business yeah you could have a player uh the same year uh but it could like be like five or ten dollars different depending on which uh which card company made it. So you could have like the same Ken Griffey Jr. in um, score, but if you had a Donruss one, that'd be worth like $10 more. Arbitrarily, for whatever reason. You know what I mean? Even though when you buy the packs of cards, they cost about the same 
same amount. Yeah. So score, strange. Score was like the Kmart, whereas uh, Upper Deck was like the Macy's. And if you had a rookie card of an you know, Upper Deck line, you're like, oh my god, this is 40 bucks. Whereas if you had a score, eh, 250 yeah, Upper Deck was like was major card card, and they were they cost the most too. And they had because they had little holograms and the uh, the stuff, you know what I mean? And it was like you know, hot. It was, I mean, it, they they spent a lot more money on the uh, the printing of them, so I guess it makes sense. Yeah, well, remember Probably they started putting the pieces of the bat or the pieces of the uniform in the shirt or in the package, and all of a sudden that became an insane thing. And then ran, they'd have randomly have like a signature on some stuff, and then you'd have like, oh, I gotta get a signature of this guy, or possibly you know a piece of yeah, piece of uh, yeah, have a little piece of jersey inside the card with game worn jersey, which made it even that much cooler. Yeah, yeah, you know it's I mean? totally different. Uh, do you really think it was game worn, or he like you know like just definitely? Oh, I put it on. Technically, it touched my skin. We're good. Who the hell? Who the hell knows? Like for thirty, he had to touch it. He breathed on it, and then like, thanks, I'll do. <laughs> Yeah, basically anything that Ken Griffey got near when we were kids, man, everybody just went batshit insane for. I wasn't really uh, um, a fan of anybody outside of the Cubs, or maybe the Giants I was a little bit a fan of, but growing up in Indiana, uh, the Cubs was definitely my thing, and sometimes the Reds, but you grew up in Philly. Were you like a big Phillies fan or Pirates? Um, not Pirates. But you see, Pittsburgh might as well be a different state. I mean, Pittsburgh is like six and a half hours away. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're like we're on the border of Ohio. Philadelphia's on the border of New Jersey, but um, uh, what's it called? Well, they're on the border of Ohio and whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was a big Phillies fan, but I was also, believe it or not, a big A's and Red Sox fan. Uh, in the late eighties, they were so exciting. Holy they're, shit! They're I like, yeah, the forty kinda... forty club. You remember that? Yeah. Jose Consenco? Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. The, the Bash Brothers and McGuire and the Red Sox were really exciting too. I mean, it was just like and the American League was really exciting. Though. The uh, I end up selling my entire comic book collection because I was apparently outgrowing comic books, uh, according to my friends, even though I still love comic books. Uh, I traded in all my comic mm. books, except for maybe like a couple special issues, for baseball card stuff. Uh, books, comics, and things in Fort Wayne did both. They did sports in like the middle of the store, and the rest of it was comic books all the way around. And I remember coming out with like right. a Jose Consenco poster and a 4040 shirt, and then a year later going, Why did I get rid of all my comics? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the baseball card market, even back then, was just so was so weird. It was like, uh, you know, they'd have, like, this, an error card that would be worth, like, hundreds of dollars, and next week would be worth nothing, you know. It's, and the resale, um, uh, the resale on baseball cards is, like, is like they'll only pay you half, and then yeah. you're lucky to even get a quarter of its value for cards. It's so strange. Yeah, what drove me nuts is when you would have comic books, and you would trade them in, and they're like... Normally, some people give you half, but this one place only gave you what the Beckett, not the Beckett, that's the baseball card stuff, um, the comic buyer's guide price would be. But I'm like, they print it once a year, mm. and each issue is like a year ago, so some stuff would be only worth a dollar fifty because it just got printed right before, uh, came, uh, but right after it came out. And like, but that was nine months ago. This thing's worth 15 bucks now, and they're like, we're only going to give you a dollar fifty. Yeah, no, it's fucking ridiculous. There was such... It was such a racket, the uh, people who ran those, those shops. And, I mean, they're like, you know, that's, like, their livelihood. They really have to learn profit, I guess. But yeah, they would, like, they would intentionally try to rip you off as, uh, you know what I mean? It's, it's almost like a pawn shop, basically. Uh, kind of, yeah. Like, what they think, yeah. They'll give you what they think you'll you'll accept for it, and they'll, they'll always try to haggle with you. And, you know, all right, well, I don't need it. Get out of here. You know, so. uh, the one thing I remember then, uh, is... Uh... 
the comic book company around this time, they started doing these uh, foil covers and uh, glow in the dark and all these little die cuts kind of stuff and limited edition, even though there's a million yeah. copies available, just to dupe these people into being like buyers when they're 15. Why do you want to get into this business when you're 15? Well, I could pay for college. No, you, you're not going to make that much money. <laughs> Yeah, it becomes almost like like the stock market. So like you know, that's the thing when when your collection you collect just first just you know originally because you enjoy it, then it becomes valuable, not just valuable to you, but valuable to other people because it's you know it's it's a it has a monetary value. So then you like yeah, you're trying to get you know you're trying to get a special edition of this, and you're hoping maybe you'll put a pack that has this kind of crazy foil hologram whatever. <laughs> You know, and then but you see like a like a, a current whatever foil something with hundreds of dollars, and you'll have like a Kyle Stremski rookie card, the same same price from nineteen sixty. Like, how does that work? I don't understand <laughs> how, how this could be worth the same as this this first ballot Hall of Famer, you know, and this card is from like nineteen sixty. I don't understand how it's these two are the same value. You know? <laughs> yeah, the decades apart, it doesn't matter. It's just you know, I am. I, I feel kind of stupid, though. I started getting to that market, but my uncle, uh, who's only actually a few months older than me, he kind of went whole hog, and he talks about how embarrassing it is now. They would tease you with, like, if you buy 25 copies of this, you get the limited edition foil cover. And he would do this, and then sit there going, I have 24 copies of something. I have no idea how I'm getting right off. Why did I do this? Yeah, that's kind of the position where I'm in. I have, like, probably, like, a, um, I have, like, a, a giant chest of, like, baseball cards and other memorabilia and other like uh pop culture related items and i really don't know how what to do with it i mean i guess it's worth money i don't know how i could sell it yeah. you know it's um i mean i i'm gonna mean, sell it all at once you know and i guess i'd have to go find an individual buyer on ebay which would take forever then i thought about maybe i'll just give it to my son and you know it'll be worth money he could do something with it but he is showing zero interest in sports <laughs> or superheroes or anything comic related you know what i mean so like but then again, I didn't really develop like a huge passion for baseball until I was like about twelve. At the same time, I had my uncle take me to ball games, and I was like six and seven. So the groundwork was kind of. Anywho, he's showing zero interest in any of that. So I'm like, oh, what the hell am I gonna do? I can get rid of it because it has like a you know, sentimental value, but also I spent so much money and time on this stuff. I can't just like you know give it away, you know. And I'm I don't know if I'll ever be able to sell it. If I will, I'll get like a fraction of its value. The um, did you but, actually play baseball? I did. I did a little bit. I mean, I wasn't very good at it, but I played. Um, um, I played a little league for a couple couple years. Basically, <laughs> I mean, my mom. I was an only child. I do have a half brother, but I was just raised by my mom, and she was like, "Look, boys play baseball. Go play baseball." So you never like. We never played. I never played catch with anybody, so I had no idea how to do anything. Couldn't catch. Couldn't throw. And then you like threw, threw me to the wolves. Like Brian Brian Regan has a um, funny bit about when he he first started playing baseball. Pretty much the same story as his. They, like, threw me in the, in the outfield. They're like, you know, all right, this is going to happen. I couldn't catch, couldn't hit. I was like, you know. Anywho, so I, stuck, so I hated baseball for a little while just because I was, like, the laughing stock of the team. But then as I got a little older, I would play pickup games with my friends. It became fun, something to hang out with, you know. So I developed a kind of a, I developed a, a love for it later, whereas when I played a, a organized baseball, I couldn't stand it. You know, yeah, it was like source of source of ridicule and, and misery every like like at least at least a couple of days a week. Uh, I still remember um, 
I wasn't very good. Uh, for some reason, they kept putting me in the outfield, and I was completely like useless out there because a you're you're their kids, and they're not going to give it to the outfield. And two, I had no arm. I couldn't. Th I was so skinny. I was like barely more than a bucket of water. I was so light. And I would get the ball, and I would throw it, and it would go like eight feet in front of me. It wouldn't get anywhere near anybody on a base. I'm like, what the hell? And I was so like. Uh, enthusiastic about getting a hit that I would swing at anything and the pitchers knew that they throw way over my head I'd swing at it and I remember being at the all-star game the only reason I got into the all-star games because everybody would like pitch too high or too low and somehow I would get on base like just uh, four balls there you go again I got a great on base percentage um but I remember standing behind everybody with me, yeah. I was standing behind everybody they didn't know I was there and they're like well I hope that cook kid isn't here he sucks and that kind of killed baseball for a while yeah, like I, I they said thing to me, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't hit, like did I? I'm like, thank you. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I, was, yeah, I would walk all the time, so I'd never swing at anything. Clearly, I was little too, so it was, it was hard for him to like, you know, keep it in my uh, strike zone. Yeah, you have to like hit, pitch, pitch it way lower. But I remember there was a girl uh, who was like um, waiting for practice. Like, she was like, I'm better than you, and I'm a girl. And, and you're kind of, you're kind of being sexist against yourself at the same time. I don't mean to. You know, I understand you're trying to make the mission accomplished, but yeah, and she was like, I'm, I'm, I'm a better ball player than you. <laughs> it was like, I, I'm way better than you, and I'm a girl. I was like, well, you know, I mean, okay, fine. <laughs> but, I mean, you're making fun of me, and I, I guess uh, mission accomplished, but you're kind of being sexist against yourself at the same time. <laughs> I don't mean to punch any holes in your plan there, but, you know, but. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah. I got hit in the face once, and I was just like, I'm kind of, that was the other thing, it was like a double whammy, and people mocking me endlessly, and I got hit in the face, like, right in the lip, just bloody mess, and I was like, I'm kind of done with baseball. <laughs> uh, I was in the outfield, and I had to piss so bad, and I was doing the, uh, you know, the old pee, pee dance, where you put your legs together, and you kind of squirm, and I was in it for a while, I guess it was a long inning, and <laughs> the coach goes like, yeah, got to take a look, and I was like, how did you it's like, are you psychic? It's like, we can all see you doing the pee pee dance out there, man. You're all squirming and stuff. I was like, oh, you guys all noticed that? I, I didn't realize it was that obvious. Yeah, can I pee now? Thank you. <laughs> Longest inning of my life. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you accidentally just had to. You're just like, I, I can't stand out here anymore. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go. And then that humiliated I... you into quitting. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here, you and your pee pee dance. No, I, mean, I, like, I almost was at the point where like, I'm going to either have to piss my pants or whip it out and go right here, man. Something. <laughs> Hurry up and get these fools out, please. <laughs> uh, you were talking about comic books, uh, like pop culture kind of stuff that you had. Did you actually? Uh, did you collect comic books? I did a little bit. I mean, I wasn't really good at um, keeping them in pristine uh, condition. Like I got one of the. I don't know if this is a. It was a reprint, but I got the when Venom first made his appearance in the eighties. Oh, what if I that got was... that one too. Yeah, Spider-Man yeah, two ninety nine or three hundred. Yeah, I, I bought. I like so. I I mean, all my comics came from the local Seven Eleven, you know, like the little spinning metal racks that yeah, they kept mine's, them in. Mine's from the local I, grocery it, store, Scotts. Yeah. So there was no like comic book stores in my area back then, and um, so I would just like you know, if I saw a cool and I would read it like you'd read literature. I'm like, this is a captivating story. I'm gonna, I'll purchase this magazine. <laughs> and that was like that was there was those were my magazines. So I read those, and you know, I didn't realize it would be worth anything. That's weird. That's completely lost in kids now is the fact that we used to go to drugstores, uh, grocery stores, and like you said, 7-Eleven, and there'd be the spinner rack. Mm -hmm. And you would just dig through yeah. and find what you want to read. It didn't matter if they were mint condition. It's just, did they have it? Okay, I want to read it. It wasn't until about 90, 91, where it became all about collectability. And the, oh, there couldn't be a single dent on this. 
I think kids forget just just read the damn thing, enjoy it. You know, it's gonna be yeah, reprinted totally. if it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was because uh, I mean there was a lot of like uh, action. Car- there was a couple action cartoons too, but I mean it wasn't like you know nowadays we have like yeah, X Men were on, on. You know what I mean? All these amazing. Uh, you know what I mean? There was like the I think was it the um, Super Friends was on like in the afternoons occasionally, yeah. but it wasn't like it is today. So it was like almost like you're you're watching like a still version of a, of, of an action cartoon. It was just you know it was a was pretty cool for the stage, but yeah, nothing was ever like, um, because, well, first of all, the clerk would just jam them in the racks, and a lot of times they'd be stuffed in there, so there's no way those things were going to be in, like, all the corners are gonna, definitely going to be jacked up. And kids who yeah. go through them, they're folding them over to get to the one behind them, because they were never organized definitely. properly, you never knew what was hidden behind that Fantastic Four or the G.I. Joe, you're like, well, what the hell is this, Silver Surfer, cool. Right, yeah, there was no kind of organization, it wasn't, like, alphabetically, or by, um, or by, uh, brand or by like um or by like a character or by you know etc etc you know dc's moved next jammed it with marvel you'd have like you know all kinds of junk all over the place i remember i used to go to the grocery store to go get comic books and i would find myself around sixth grade discovering fangoria and gore zone a friend would introduce me to him and we would go there and just read the whole magazine i wasn't allowed to watch horror movies so it was a whole new world for me like oh my god that's disgusting i gotta look at more oh my god that's insane and nobody ever stopped us. It's very weird. I never paid for a single issue. Well, yeah, it was the same thing. With, I would like the uh, the Conan the Barbarian magazines too. That was like almost like a graphic, more than a comic book. It was like a bigger book. And it was like a graphic novel, and they cost like a buck twenty five, whereas the other comic books cost like twenty five cents, you know. And uh, I would just read that, and it was almost because the ladies were sexualized, scantily clad, and you'd be like chopping people right down the middle. You know, what I mean? it was really graphic. And I was I was allowed to read it, you know. I mean, of course, occasionally. I'm not being racist. The, the, you know, the, the, the clerk was Indian and he's like, yes, there's not a library. You have to go. He really did sound like that. That's really, you know, very much like Apu, but he would get mad after a while if I was reading too long. And then he was like, I don't think that's appropriate for you. It's, you know, <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's with the rest of the comic books. Why not? You know, so. like put them in a different section, put them behind the counter with the, the playboys that you keep back there. Yeah. Of course they were always with the, like black plastic over too. So you couldn't really see, you know, yeah, I think it's funny. I and go to yeah. antique malls now, and I'll see people who have stacks of Playboys that they collected throughout the 70s and in, like, these pristine bags and everything. I'm like, uh, it looks nice on the outside, but are the pages stuck together? <laughs> yeah, that's, like, comic book collections for, like, pervs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's amazing, though, that, like, antique malls have no problem with this. It, it tells you how accustomed we become to Playboy. Now, I, I'm not going to say they're going to they have a Hustler or Penthouse or anything. There was always a weird distance between those magazines. Like, Playboy seemed kind of <laughs> fun and cheeky, you know? And the other ones are like dirty smut porno, you know? Yeah, I had this antique uh, edition of Swank. Check it out. <laughs> it's a gold platinum edition. <laughs> Going to dark pews. I, I, only, I only know that, I only know that, uh, that magazine because my roommate at the time when I lived in Mississippi had a buttload of like swank magazines. I'm like, where do you find these? What is this swank? <laughs> there was a store in the middle of Huntington where it was like on the first chunk, it was like they rented videos. You remember when every store seemed to rent videos? Like you go into any uh-huh. kind of shop and they'd at least have a couple dozen. You're like, what? Oh, you guys rent movies too? How much are they? You know, um, but they had videos up front and then normal bookstore, comic books, tons of comic books. And then they had this little section that wasn't even really marked off. It was just like, oh, a tiny wall that would be like adults only. And I had a friend who would always go back there and come out with the craziest stuff. I'm like, I'm just cool with the Playboys. That, I'm, I don't, you know, I was too young at the time. I was like, that is insanely, like, I feel wrong reading. 
<laughs> Check out this murder porn. It's pretty top of the line. You know? the clown porn. <laughs> I don't know where uh, to go after that. But, <laughs> That's an awkward moment. <laughs> Weird segue. Uh, uh, no, but like as far as as far as collections go, I've the very first thing I ever collected um, had to have been probably because we're your kids had to have been like toys. Oh, definitely. You know what I mean, and like uh, so like and at first you're collecting toys because you want because you want like uh, something like so if for instance if it's like Star Wars you want Chewbacca to fight you know one of the stormtroopers or you want like uh, you know. Destro to fight Duke or something in GI Joe. So you're not b- collecting these toys for any kind of value except for the value of play because you want to like, you know, you want to like play the cartoon out, 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 you know what I mean, in front of you. And then you find out they, uh, they start becoming valuable. By the time I found out uh, Star Wars toys were valuable, I had already gotten rid of them all. You know, I had lost half of them and then gave them to my cousin and then he lost them all. So I was like, forget it. Yeah, I you actually know. had quite a few Star Wars toys. I held on to them until around uh, Attack of the Clones had come out. Uh, most of them were like Damn. when we were kids, those, those original toys. But of course, I started collecting when they got reintroduced around 95, 96. Um, okay. God, I still remember those, that 95, 96 line. We were trying to get all of them, especially the rare ones. Like, oh, Boba Fett has two bumps on his hand or something weird. And we traveled all over northern Indiana trying to find this stuff we would, we would leave like at eight o'clock in the morning come back at eight o'clock at night and come back with one toy and i spent sixty dollars on gas another you know 20 on food we're like that's that's the stupidest collection i don't know why i didn't think of it at the time while i was wasting so much money and time to i could do other things yeah to- totally in retrospect I was like, why was i even doing that you know like i remember i had like all these uh these burger like uh burger king star wars glasses that came out like in the early 80s so you'd buy back then you'd you know you'd buy a glass with your meal and then like i guess you pour your soda in or i don't know collector's edition glass but i had like the whole set and i was so proud of it that mo- eventually my mother kept breaking them oh. accidentally at first accidentally at first but then i think one time she got mad at me and just threw it on the ground like, you no know, i can't once they stop stop selling them i can't ever get them again don't you understand <laughs> you know and then like you know decades later i saw the whole collection like um and like uh, down the boardwalk and it was like a couple hundred dollars. Oh what God. was on the glass? Was it just stuff. Burger King, or was it like character or something? Well, it was Burger King. They had like, um, so they had like a, a scene of like, um, they'll have like uh, Harrison Ford, Han Solo on it, and it would just like be like a still of like you know a scene from the movie oh, okay. on the so glass. I didn't realize there were Star Wars cups you were talking about. I think you're just talking about Burger King. Glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. No, they're Burger King Star Wars edition glasses. And uh, sorry, I probably I probably said it too fast. <laughs> Mumbled that out. But uh, yeah, and like they kept breaking, and I, I, I have a suspicion that she was doing it on purpose when I, because I was kind of a handful. Like, looks like I dropped into the glass. Oh, butterfingers, you know? Like, no, Jesus. you're killing me. <laughs> I remember the Muppets glasses. I don't know who was doing them. I think it was oh, uh, yeah. Arby's. Uh, we had a bunch of those, and so they all went. You know, they had like the Looney Tunes characters. I remember for a while, and they had the Peanuts characters, and whatever hot movie was coming around. I always wondered, uh, right. trying to look back on the characters that they would put on toys, like for the Happy Meals or for the mugs, and be like, oh, that movie totally tanked. Like, how many cups out there are with Crawl on them? Or, uh, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of something that bomb, you know, like uh, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Oh, we thought this movie was going to be huge! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's a b- bunch of those out there. I, maybe because just because it was such a bomb, they were so rare, they got yanked out of production and looked right away. They might be worth something. I don't even know how the market works these days. 
Yeah, it's well after Star Wars, remember, it's when it became like merchandising. Planet of the Apes really did start it. Everybody gives credit to Star Wars. Planet of the Apes is like the first thing I saw where it was tons and tons of merchandising on everything. And um, I think the company started noticing that if they attached themselves to a hot property or a supposed hot property, that they would get people in their restaurant to buy the food or whatever. And then, oh, collectability, I'll pay more for this. And then how many times they probably attached mm-hmm. themselves to them, stunk up the... Well, yeah, you would appeal to the kids, which would bring your parents in there. So it'd be something the kids would like. And you have to say, collect collectible. So you have to say, what isn't collectible? Anything could be collectible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just uh, have a, new, a limited edition collectible. You know what I mean? Like, I time's running out. I got to get this collectible, you know? And that's what, you know, drives up sales, get, gets, gets you in there. You know, they, of course, you have to get them all, you know? And they only have they only have a certain kind each week or something created, which is probably horseshit. They probably had them all back there. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I remember just, we had, uh, I worked at McDonald's for one summer, and we had these Bobby's World toys that would come with the Happy Meal. And people would come in just like insane, desperate to get all the pieces. Uh, kids, if you don't remember, Bobby's World at one point in time was a very popular cartoon. I guarantee <laughs> yeah, you, nobody how, under how, 25 remembers it. How, Howie Mandel was the voice. Yeah, and uh, those toys, we had case after case after case, but we're only allowed to put them out. Uh, this case goes out Monday. This case goes out, you know, the next Monday. You know, once a week we put the new stuff out. Same thing with the uh, Olympic Cups. Do you remember the very first year when the Olympics allowed professional basketball players to play? Yeah, back in 92. Those cups, those, those Slurpee Cups or whatever were really popular, and they were like, because uh, it was it was because you had all these stars in there. It was just such a momentous occasion. You know, like, so you have like, the dream. Yeah, well, the first original dream team, yeah. Well, I think it's bullshit they even did it in the first place. Olympics is supposed to be about amateurs. Adding professionals to it screws everything. It destroys the whole point of the Olympics. So I've always thought that was. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the uh, the issue was um, like uh, the U.S. would be playing like like Russia wouldn't really have like uh, as organized a league with some of their sports. <laughs> So they would pretty much have these like pro level players playing collegiate level athletes in the U.S. and other countries. So it was almost like an unfair advantage, you know, like the U.S. like the early 1980 hockey team that beat the um, the uh, the Russian team, which was like such a you know an amazing feat. Yeah. Those are like seasoned pro level players oh, playing like I didn't know amateur that. level. Well, forget players. what I just said. Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I, well, like they don't like you know. I mean, of course, it was hard to know what what or if they're you know behind the you know the the iron curtain you don't know what they're paying them if they're paying them you know it was all suspect but like you know that's they were like uh be part of this machine where they would just like crank out like these like elite players and probably performance enhancing drugs i'm sure back then too and just, oh you know, yeah they, they weren't do heavy testing back then the um but yeah but it was like but it was no. It was cool about the '92 the Dream Team is like you're watching like almost like the Globetrotters play like the rest of the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the the rest of the world was like the uh, what, what, what was it? What was the team that always lose to them? Ah, shit, I can't remember. It was like the Senators or something, or the Capitals or something. Yeah, it was, some, it was probably know. some minor league that they end up getting. I can't remember who it is. They always go up against every time. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's, always, a, it's that amazing. They always win. That movie with Will Ferrell. I bet you it was that team. <laughs> Uh, for me, with the toys, uh, the first thing I would collect is Star Wars. I think most people our generation started off with that. Uh, I clearly yeah. wrote all over them with crayon, like giving them blood. I did the same thing with my GI Joes. Uh, later, I luckily I yep. can clean it off. You'd think they would stain it, but it doesn't. Uh, and these are back when toys did not have articulation. They just had like stiff, just arms straight down to the side, and the toys yeah. would just kind of plop in their hand. It's like 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 mannequin, like up and down arms, and yeah, you know, they wouldn't like you know no uh, no no wrist swiveling or. You know, things of that nature. 
no sounds unless you every once in a while you get one like there was a rom toy you could put a battery in and make a sound or there was a sound wave from the transformers you could put a battery in he'd light up uh but other than that it was like that's the best they could do is pew, pew, pew. that's it yeah like it well of course the gi joe guys you can kind of take them apart if you screwed them out through the back and then put like different like uh body parts and make this weird you could i could never really put it back together as well no you know, i tried the rubber band you got to take them apart and put them back together that yeah thing the rubber bands with like the the leg socket to the hip always got fucked up every, every time were you a masters of the universe guy yep had all, all, all the he-man stuff uh castle that little that front facade of castle gray school had that and like uh yeah, those are those are pretty awesome. Uh, we basically have like like little tiny uh, plastic bodybuilders, you know, with swords. <laughs> it's pretty much what I look like. I think the first one I had was He Man, and you'd hit his chest and it'd flip around to be damaged. You could change the spring back and. Oh yeah. Him. There was that one. Moss yeah, I had a little, little, little battlefield. Like <laughs> yeah, he was fuzzy, and then like Man at Arms had the weird little arm stuff. I can't remember the names of them. I know there's a monkey guy. I can't remember his name. A monkey-faced guy. No, Beastman. Uh, Beast man. There you go. I'm trying to think. Uh, I, mean, you that, had, I, um... I did collect quite a few of those, but my jam was totally G.I. Joe. I, I collected that for... Because they would do them in series. They would be like, you know, uh, 13 for this season or whatever series. And that one won for like 15 runs. And I stuck with it from, mm-hmm. I think, about number two to about eight. Yeah, and they would always have these crazy special edition ones that you'd have to send away for. Like, I sent away for, like, the Sergeant Slaughter guy. And then, they, the, you know, back, they had the uh, uh, fridge, the uh, refrigerator William Perry from the Bears. He had a special figurine. I sent away for him, and I got that. That was awesome. He had that football that was on a chain, which is one of the craziest weapons I've ever seen. Totally, yeah. They had a Rocky Balboa one. They had it designed. They were ready to go off, and then Sylvester Stallone changed his mind and would not sign the deal. So there's one like mold out there for it, but it never got released. Oh, snap. If you can, somebody has that, it's worth a lot of money. Like, um, I was watching this, uh, this show called the, uh, the toy hunter. Right. And apparently this, this, what this, that guy does is he goes around, uh, to all these places, visit people in the, the private collection, offers them money for it. He's like a collector. He owns a store and then he'll buy them and then resell them. And it's like his deal. And so a lot of people have private collections. Well, he went to like the abandoned, he went to St. Louis, and then a guy used to work for the Kenner factory, had all this product left over, and he had the prototype um, Boba Fett that fired the missile off the back, which they had out originally, but they had to take them off the shelf because they were afraid kids would shoot themselves in the eye, choking hazard, et cetera. He had the prototype, and it was unpainted. It was just gray. It was just like a gray plastic thing. And uh, he, I, can't remember what he, I can't remember what he paid a guy for but he went to like a convention, a toy iconic convention, um, at Southern California somewhere. And I think he sold it for like, I'm going to say $8,000, maybe more, but it's like crazy that, that it would go for that. It could be even more than that. I'm not even sure. I can't remember the exact price, but I mean, yeah, it's just what somebody's willing to pay for these things. I mean, yeah, it's weird. I've, and, I've uh, been hearing that like people find molds, like old molds for these toys. I'm like, but it's not the actual toy. Yeah, but it's the mold. Are you going to make new toys with it? No. Then why are you own? Why do you want it? I don't understand. <laughs> That's crazy. Some of these people's collections, like they be holding on to this like toy, whatever, thirty years. I mean, some people just bought it and they just hold, they, they bought it at a convention or something and hold on it for twenty years, and then maybe it went up five dollars in value. You know what I mean? And sometimes it's like like oh, I'll give you thirty dollars for it. It's like well, I bought it new for fifteen. So like he's been holding on to it forever, and it's just gone up like, like ten bucks or so. You know what I mean? 
So it's crazy. It's like, you know, it's like you made your life out of this and you're, you know, you're, you're trying to predict the market. If it's going to be like a valuable antique someday and it's like, really not worth, that's why I understand antiques either. It's like, you know, some of these things like, you know, you're worth like untold fortunes and, you know, it's some, a similar piece from the same era. It's worth like, you know, in the spot. Yeah, I mean, one little thing different. I think it's funny that there's a there's an antique mall up in Milwaukee, Oregon, across from the Dark Horse Comics headquarters. It's a ton of, like, uh, antiques, but it's also a lot of pop culture stuff. And there's some dude who doubled down on Waterworld toys. Like, he's like, this is going to be the biggest movie this summer. Everybody's going to want these toys. Six, uh, six months later, he's like, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, I, I didn't even know they were, they made toys for that for that uh, stink bomb of a movie. Oh, there's some really like, especially during the '90s. There's some movies that everybody thought were going to be big, and they made a ton of toys for. Like, I think there was a Tank Girl line. There was uh, Warriors of Virtue, which I think made two million dollars. Whoever bought the rights to that must be like fired. He had to have been fired instantly. Yeah, and apparently there's like these this J.R. Tolkien. Um, back back in the '70s when they had the animated uh, uh, Tolkien movies, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, etc. Uh, they had toys to accompany these, but they're super rare. And uh, this toy hunter went to some attic in West Virginia or something and found one of them. But he said apparently the Holy Grail is this one wraith or one or something that's worth like thirty thousand dollars or something oh. crazy. And it's but super it's super rare, super hard to find. So that's like that's one of the ones that you just like have just by happenstance may find one day in your life. But there's like almost almost none made. You know. Was there a toy that you ever? Like even purchased one of that was like pretty obscure. Like not a lot of people remember it now. Oh well, I mean you and I probably remember. But I had those uh, those Chuck Norris toys. Oh. When those Chuck Norris, <laughs> we um... always joke about that on the our cartoon show about discussing. Oh, uh, those are great. Chuck Norris and the Karate Commandos. I had the comic book, but I didn't have any of the toys. I had um. So I had I can't remember the character's name, but it was like a purple guy with like his black kind of. Uh, rocker gene simmons looking hair yeah, uh, in the back gene simmons. i think it was like ninjack or something like that something like that and you you kind of twisted his arms he does a little front flip flip and kick at you know what i mean but uh yeah i, I had those i thought those are pretty boss back in the back in the day but and then of course i had those um those little those muscles remember those, those oh, little, yeah, uh, yeah, the little rubber yeah and then uh i little the little uh wrestling ring you put them in a little thing you made them bop each other you made them almost like uh Almost like rock 'em sock 'em robots, but you put them in this little grip, and they like you basically just make them slam into each other. It was kind of dumb, but yeah. yeah, I used to have a ton of those. Uh, you used to get them in packages of like twelve or fifteen mm-hmm. for like just a couple bucks, and they were just pink. They would have like interesting uh, designs to them, and I think originally they were supposed to be painted, and then the company that imported them said, "Nah, they'll just ship them out the way they are." Yeah, it's weird. Like, there's a lot of them that looked almost the same. There's always this one guy with these little horns sticking out of his head, yeah, one and eye. it was like a five. Yeah, five of the symbols. So I thought it was, I tried to collect all of them, and then they kept making more. I was like, I, I can't keep them. Yeah, Forget we it. had that with micro machines. There, when those first came out, everybody was insane for them. We we got a bunch of them, and uh, I just remember like I can't keep up. They keep issuing out like a dozen every month, and uh, I think I gave up after the first couple. But my uncle, uh, he had probably a hundred of them. Yeah, I remember um, kind of like along the lines of micro machines. Back when the original Star Wars toys came out, there was like little micro versions of them. I just saw them on the back catalog of like a little book that they had. You know, they would they'd have booklets with whatever Star Wars toys they have, like you know, advertising their other Star Wars product. And I saw these little micro versions of it, but I've never actually seen them in stores. So I've never even now they make them. They make you know in uh, modern versions of them, but I never remember. I never saw the original versions. I always want to get those as a kid, but they, they never sold anywhere. Yeah, 
Yeah. It's I not like one. today where like I actually had one. It was oh, it's really? like a hard metal. It's like a heavy, dense metal. I found one at um, mm-hmm. an antique mall. It was an X Wing. It was missing one of the guns. Uh, but I was like, I've never seen this before. I gotta have this. Right. Yeah, and that's the way I like. Even, but even currently, I was like, "Where did these sold at?" Because like we had like two back in my you know back in my day, we had like two toy stores. One was like a local version, and the other one was like Toys R Us, whichever we had. But we had a, a a local version of a toy store called Kitty City, which ended up going out of business. But now, you know, I mean, if you're a toy collector now, you have each store makes their own individual um, exclusive uh, toy version. So you can go broke, and you would still never amass everything. Yeah. You never complete a set. I, uh, I because... collected Crystar. Do you remember this at all? No, I never heard of that one. It, it was a sword. You know, during the early '80s, sword sorcery was like the shit. Everybody was like nuts for it. And uh, I think it was Remco, mm. this low-budget nothing company. They only had like a few toy lines, and Crystar was supposed to be their big shot. And it was like in this uh, sword and sorcery world where people were made out of crystal, and you could actually see through the toys. They're made through some sort of weird plastic mold that you could see through them. And uh, I had like three or four. I had picked them up at a garage sale, like right after they had come out. Some kid decided he didn't want them anymore. And I had these, and I, nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. And it took me like 20 years <laughs> to even figure out what the whole story was behind it. Oh, that's, it sounds a little bit like that, uh, like like Dark Crystal, the Jim Henson uh, movie. But I, I don't recall seeing, seeing those toys in the, my neck of the woods. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the Karate Commandos, did you know they had a Commando, the movie with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? They had a toy line for that, and they had a toy line for Rambo. I, I, I've seen those. I, I never bought those, but I do remember seeing those um, in the stores. It's just weird. They would gear an R-rated movie at kids. Yeah, well, see, like, Sylvester so and um, Schwarzenegger was such a phenomenon. You know what I mean? Back then, you would have to see the movie as a kid and knew that, like, you know, it would kick so it would kick ass, you know, but I'll still play with it. Even though, like, as kids, like, you know, you would you would be like, as, as parents, you'd be like, I don't know if my kid's playing with this. Maybe we'll go see the movie, see him race slap at somebody's neck, a little violent, but... <laughs> parents didn't really parents didn't guard, guard kids against that kind of stuff back then. Yeah. I don't remember if there's any nudity in Commando, but no, I just know there's a part where he takes that machete and chops a guy's arm off, and he takes that uh, the chainsaw, not the chainsaw blade, the uh, saw blade, or whatever, throws it, and lands in a guy's head, and it's like ah. <laughs> but back then, uh, PG in 1985 is not PG of you know now or PG 13. I don't even PG 13 existed until like late 1984. Well, back then, PG-13, at least in my mind, meant the possibility of a flash of a boob. Yeah. And I was like, yes, ours, ours, you're prob- if it was an R movie, you're probably going to see a pair somewhere throughout the movie. But PG-13, you'll see a flash of one boob maybe for a second. That's the way I broke it down. So if I was able to see a PG-13 movie, I'm like, I might get a chance to see that. You know, Language, language. I hear enough curses in my, in my neighborhood. I don't really don't care. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, other than that, I think I kind of gave up on toys. I did do Thundercats a little bit, but by 88, I was out of toys and uh, into baseball. And after that, it went back to comic books. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of gave up collecting. I There was a brief period where I decided that I needed to surround myself when I thought I was going to be a comedian or a, at least a funny writer. I filled my room with autographs of all these great comedians, you know, Steve Martin, uh, David Letterman, you know, David Spade. Okay, give or take. I actually like David Spade. I know a lot of people hate him. But David that, Spade. David Spade's awesome. Yeah, I had a bunch of these autographs all over my room as, like, inspiration. And that's the last time I really collected anything. Now, I've, I'm an adult. I've been broke so many times that I just, like, well, I'm just holding on to them until I get broke again. And I'll have to sell them on eBay or something, you know? <laughs> Right. Well, the problem with amassing any collection, it, all, it, it becomes borderline hoarding, you know what I mean? And it's like us, we've traveled a lot. 
now you got now like, well, what do I do with this stuff? I, I do I have to you know you debate what should I take it with me? Should I spend extra money to take it with me? Then maybe it becomes like a storage situation. Do I want to pay to have to store it somewhere, which is going to cost me money? Now something I spend a lot of money on, which I don't want to sell, is potentially going to keep costing me money because I have to pay for storage. You know, so that becomes a whole whole other situation. Yeah. Were you ever at my place when I still had all those VHS tapes? Yeah. Yeah. You just had, had a good amount left when I when I left. I was like, wow, I don't know what you're going to do, do with all <laughs> yeah. that stuff. You have a lot left here. I, I said that was my last collection, the autographs, but it slowly dawned on me. I was like, oh, shit, that's right. I was running a business where I was going around all over Oregon. And it's, it started, actually started in California, but it really took off in Oregon. And I traveled all of Washington and uh, looking for rare VHS tapes, stuff that wasn't on DVD or severely out of print. And then I resell them. That was my business. But it became this thing where I felt like an archaeologist of, like, these movies, finding the rarest stuff possible in my whole house. Every single nook and cranny were buying new furniture just to fit them in there. I had maybe 10,000 VHS tapes at one time. And then the bottom fell out. So I started, like, you know, slashing prices like crazy, selling them at huge lots. And they've been gone for a while. But for a, I, there was not a time where I wouldn't bump into a case filled with VHS tapes. Jeez. Yeah, like I, I mean, like well, in uh, I think it's on Clinton Street. There is like there is kind of a market for that again. There's like they're selling, they sell like a, it's one of the only in Portland, but like uh, there's like a video store where you can rent them still, and then they have rare VHS tapes to, to buy as well. But yeah, for the most part, they're uh, uh, it's uh, like it's like a rare rare collection for some people to have. I I try to get rid of most of mine. I gave gave away a lot of mine, and of course I had a bunch of stuff where I just taped, I dubbed on the tapes. Which I just end up getting rid of, you know, <laughs> dumb stuff like 1993 slam dunk contest that I just dubbed from TV. You there know, like a, no one's gonna, no one's gonna want that. There's a podcast called TV Guidance Counselor. This guy on there, Ken Reed, awesome guy. Um, but he talks about how he tape trades. He still trades. I don't know if he's literally talking about the VHS itself, but he trades people all these tapes. And it's, sometimes it's just like, oh, I taped a Saturday morning block from 1989, you know? So he just watches that and collects them or mm. just a bunch of old commercials. That's what YouTube has kind of become. That collectability that I had, you know, years ago, YouTube has basically replaced that with all these obscure, like, video clips. And Yeah. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, th th that's the thing. YouTube is, like, destroying people. Well, it's, it's also good for, like, um, just for, like, uh, updating your memories. Like, well, I wonder what that show was with the blue thing and it was a dog then you talk clip on youtube oh foofer i remember that cartoon now, you know what i mean <laughs> but the chance you're gonna find somebody who remembers that cartoon or even has it you know what i mean is like slim to none you know yeah is there anything else that you collected we haven't covered uh you know what i collected rocks because i was an idiot and i thought i would get rich somehow On rocks? like uh like you know rocks because you know you thought like well this look at this little piece of quartz thinking like wonder if it's a valuable crystal maybe i'll keep digging and find gold and <laughs> Yeah, I was just not very bright, and I thought maybe. People, well, I was poor too. There's people I was poor, and rocks were free. Uh, agates, I think they're called agates. There are people who go up and down the beach looking for them, and then they'll take them home and clean them up, and then sell them on eBay. Yeah, well, I also thought maybe I'd find one of those. What are those things with it? The geodes, whatever, where you crack them open, and there's like crystals inside, and you know, yeah. thought maybe I'd find one of those, or I'd dig up and find like a rare gold nugget, or maybe some of these little. And I also collected coins too. You know, so my grandfather gave me some silver coins, and I had a few antiques, and they weren't really. They were about worth what they were, what they said in the face value of the coin. Maybe twenty-five cents more, like a silver dollar. Like, yeah, it's worth a dollar. Way to go, you know. It's like those savings bonds. You're like, I have to hold on to this till when to get five dollars? That's what the hell are you thinking? It's a terrible present. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Not anything. Thanks for that. Uh, 
<laughs> Thanks for that nothing I can't use. Wow, <laughs> great birthday. Oh man, I just I think about some of these things that people invested so much time and you know, and then it turns out it's just absolutely worthless. And I'm like, why did I hold on to this so near and dear? I'm an idiot. I, I work I work with this guy um, who's originally from like Long Island, and he traveled from Long Island to like Miami, and now he lives up here in like you know suburban Raleigh, North Carolina with me. And he always is posting pictures of his like house. It looks like a comic book store and like a vintage toy shop exploded in his house. It is like, <laughs> everywhere, and he's got like shelves and and like you know showrooms. And it's like I mean, he's got like a wife. And I was like, how does she feel about you monopolizing the whole house with, with house with your your you know your tchotchkes and your you know your trinkets? She's like, well, she's not crazy about it, but you know that's what that's what it was when she met me. I was like. That's that, now. That's your greatest magic trick. You found a girl in, in, in the beginning was you know was willing to put up with all your crap because he brought it all the way. He brought all the stuff with him from Long Island. Then he amassed more stuff when he was in Miami. Brought all that with him, and he's like you know, you know, whole giant moving trucks worth of stuff he's got to take with him each time and all this stuff. And then he's uh, he's going to buy like about anywhere from a four hundred dollar to a thousand dollars Spider Man number fourteen comic book. He's gonna he's a, he's in the process of purchasing. That's all. He, it's all he does with all his money. He buys like rare and vintage comic books and hey, just. Um, least, and just here, here's the thing with collecting that bugs me is if you're not enjoying it, I feel like you're wasting your time. Uh, either you must ha- have it on display so you can at least look at it. When people buy stuff and they throw it in a box and like, oh yeah, it's just it's saved for later. Open that toy up, man. Play with that toy. Read that comic book. Watch that movie. Whatever it is, uh, enjoy the shit out of it because a lot of times it's just uh, a pointless endeavor. Yeah, totally, and it's it's I, it's almost becomes like you know the the uh, the whole Tibetan uh, you know um, philosophy is like do you own your possessions or do your possessions own you? You know what I mean? You're just holding on to them forever, and just you you don't know what to do with them. You can't get rid of them, but you keep you keep accumulating and collecting, and you know, and not not really enjoying it. It's just part of your part of your personality now. You know. I didn't realize that was a Buddhist monk saying. I thought that was from fight club so apparently fight club took it from that i'm like a quoting tyler durden to everybody yeah the things you own will eventually own you i'm so cool <laughs> now you're just going <laughs> i didn't realize i was buddhist well i'm sure i i'm sure i butchered it slightly but i think it's it's originally a buddhist philosophy because the I mean, buddhists are really minimalist they don't believe in having a lot of possessions and, yeah we but, i um, think a lot of but I, but I, has to do with depression i feel like people who are a little damaged do more collecting they hoard more Oh, oh, totally. I, I can totally attest to that. I mean, especially I grew up like uh, as an only child, poor, pretty much poor. So everything I owned, I had to collect because I mean, I didn't know when I was going to get my next thing. And it became like a valuable treasure to me because um, you'd only get toys so often because, you know, I mean, my, my mom was poor. So everything I had, I tried to keep in the best condition possible. I didn't want to lose it or break it. And um, yeah, so I would just accumulate Star Wars, G.I. Joe's, coins. I would collect bottles and rocks coin you know you, you know all, all kinds of things i remember there's this guy in my neighborhood um slurpee used to have the coins at the bottom of their cups like underneath little things oh, right. and uh, they had these base and they had these baseball ones and this guy would just pay me to go to 7-eleven to get it for him and uh that was like you know for a while I was like, this is great and i guess he i guess he felt embarrassed buying four slurpees a day or something <laughs> you know so he would just pay me to go ahead and give him his baseball, give him his cup, and like, you know, like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, there's a coin at the bottom. He's like, are they worth anything? He's like, yeah, you know, a couple of dollars. I was like, okay. You know, back then it didn't mean anything. He was like, all right, just keep paying me. I'll keep bringing them to you. You know. Yeah, it's just kind of funny how it seems like it's a replacement for something else in your life. I mean, I've been there a few times where I've been like really lonely, so I will hold on to something, or I'll start collecting something that makes no sense, like 
Uh, I watched Streets of Fire and Eddie and the Cruisers one day, and I became fascinated with how awesome Michael Pere was, and I was like, who the hell is this guy? And I started looking for every one of his videos, and I started like, well, I can't rent them, because we only had like three video stores, and they only had so many movies, and so I started buying them on eBay, and I look one day, and I'm like, I have 20 Michael Pere movies just sitting here. Why do I have these? Oh, I need help. Because <laughs> he, he was great in that one movie, so... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, like I find myself like uh, do that to my son. Like my son on Pokemon cards, I'll be treating him like crap, like bending him up, and and I find myself going like, "You gotta take care of these. These are precious." I'm thinking, he's a kid. These are like his toys. Let him do what he wants with them. Who cares if he trashes them? I don't want. I don't want him to hold on to him like I did my my toys and be chained chained to him for the rest of his life. You know. Did you ever have a rich friend who had like way more than you ever like expected? Like, you know how there's the giant vehicles. Like you'd see like the Star Destroyer, that GI Joe landing strip, and you're like. You have all of this stuff. He's like, yeah, I don't give a shit. Eh, whatever. I'll just go get the next thing. I'm just going to throw yeah. it in the closet. Yeah, my friend Steve up the street had everything and anything that was the latest and greatest. And his parents, he was an only child, as was I, but I was a poor only child. But um, his parents gave him anything he could want. And he got gifts for holidays you didn't get gifts for, like Easter. He got Arbor all these. Day. He got, he got more, yeah, he got more gifts on Easter than I got on Christmas and my birthday combined. Jesus. I was like, what the fuck is this Easter? You're supposed to get an egg and some candy. That's it, man. You, you guys are you guys are obeying the rules, man. Knock it off. You're ruining it for the rest of us. I remember the first time. But he got every. The first time I ever was ever on a bus to go to school because my bus was always or my school was always really close to my house. I got on a bus to go to school and there's this kid from a new neighborhood or whatever talking about. Yeah, I have the Genesis. I have the Nintendo. I have the Turbo Graphics 16. I have the Atari. You know, he's going on and on. And I've never felt such hate and jealousy at the same time. If you wanted to turn me to the dark side at that moment, you, I, I would have been primed. <laughs> yeah, I, I, him, him too. He had every kind of game system. I was like, you son of a bitch, dude. You don't even, you don't even know what you have. You don't even care. <laughs> and there was yeah, that one like, weird kid who has like the Intellivision or Coleco. And you're like, no, you can't have both of the weird one. You either have an Atari and maybe another, like an Intellivision. You can't have, you know, the, all the weird brands. <laughs> don't be that guy come on and that's the only reason you i i had a, one well I had, I had a one my one friend in school he's a big time baseball uh car collector and then he just came to the realization one time when we were like in uh eighth grade he just started ripping up his cars like, what are you doing he's like these have taken control of my life i can't i gotta stop right now I was like, just just give them away he's like ripping <laughs> no. up the pages of of kid Griffey junior rookies you know what i mean back then they're worth a lot I was like, stop what are you doing He's like, you no, I'm not nobody can have these. They're ruining us. I can't. That's all I do with all my time. I'm trying to collect these. For what? I'm never gonna sell them. I'm never gonna he was losing it. I was like, just stop, stop. I, I, I felt like I was watching somebody late fire to a hundred dollar bill. I was like, what are you doing? And then he one just, kid who get in trouble yeah. and you found out the next day he's like all moping around. What happened? My mom grounded me and tore up all my comics. You're like, Oh, you poor son of a bitch. Oh. Damn it. Did you ever have uh, friends who tried to like rip you off in trades with certain things? Um, like, uh... I was that asshole. I was the guy who would... Figure out. I, I was <laughs> yes, that... I did. <laughs> I was the finagler. I'm the one who would con somebody out of like, oh, you have the Death of Green Goblin issue. I have the hot new Punisher issue. You want it? He's like, yeah, I'll take that Spider-Man issue off your hands. Sure. And you're like, this is worth $75. <laughs> I was totally that asshole. Yeah, like... Uh... <laughs> like yeah, I have that friend, and that friend was me. But uh, that, like uh, my my friends, I mean, I, I gotta give it to them because they were crafty. But they like got like a, a reprint of this like Honest Wagner. You know the Honest Wagner baseball card, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the Holy Grail of all tobacco cards. 
they got like a, a cutout from the magazine and managed to make it look like a baseball card and they folded it up and made it look, you know, all vintage and worn. And me like a dumb sucker. I was like, not thinking, how would these guys get a, get a hold of this? They had traded it to me for like, I think like an Ellis Burks rookie and maybe a, some other ones that were like, at the time worth a lot of money. It totally ripped me off. And then told me the next day, we totally ripped you off. Well, yeah, it's too bad. You already agreed to the trade. I was like, you guys are really pieces of shit, man. You guys just fucking, you know. Like, and then they like bragged about it, how they ripped me off. And, and uh, so like, I should have like to stop hanging out with them. But like Sweet Redemption, like they traded me, um, I think they traded me like a Ryan. I, they, I traded them, uh, uh, back then, Cubs are, these, the Cubs are these two great prospects. It's like a Dwight Smith and Jerome Walton, which is like supposed to be like the next killer bees, like, you know, Bonza Bonilla. They're supposed to be the next great thing. So um, I traded both of them for like a Ryan Sandberg, 83, Fleer rookie or whatever. And then these two guys who... These two guys want to be nothing, and then Ryan Sandberg would end up being in the Hall of Fame. So that was like, you know, sweet redemption right there. I traded someone uh, a Michael Jordan card for something else, like a bunch of stuff. Like, oh, yeah, I want Michael Jordan. I got like Brett Saberhagen's rookie card and a bunch of others, like big cards. I mean, you found out through the next day, whatever, mm-hmm. after checking someone's price guy. He's like, oh, man, it's only worth five bucks. And, it, uh, and proceeded to want to beat the shit out of me right in school. That ended up a disaster because I'm such a pussy. I ended up hiring somebody to protect me, and then that guy hired somebody to protect him. And so my bodyguard and his bodyguard uh, ended up fighting, and my bodyguard got the fuck beat out of him. And so the next day in school, it was like, oh, God, never doing that again. If I got to take a hit, I'll take it myself. (laughs) Wow. It's kind of like a complicated plot there it was the beginning of a mafia i'm sure if it had gone in the wrong direction sure <laughs> right now i'd be the crime lord of, of that small town jeez I know. but yeah like so i i i was not i was never sharp enough on the on the uh head of the curve to be able to rip anybody off because you know what i mean i just got if i ever made out on a trade it was usually months later out of dumb luck but yeah but my friends were always had the inside scoop and they're always crafty enough to like make something look old and vintage and sucker me into it like yeah thanks a lot so-called friends <laughs> all right it looks like we're at our hour point is there anything else you want to throw on the episode before we go uh no yeah it's just uh just like like i said i mean i'm sure everyone collected something whether it's gross enough like you know like your toenails or whatever <laughs> i mean you know, i I have, I have a 40 year old friend who collects air jordans to this day who just like you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month on sneakers so People still do it, you know, if it's if you, just because you think it's weird doesn't mean there isn't thousands of people doing it all, all across the country. You know what? That is a good segue into next month's episode. We kind of threw this idea around. Let's do a mini so because I know it's not going to take up a whole hour. Let's discuss the shoe fanaticism of our youth. You know, we're talking Reebok pumps and, you know, the launching of Airwalk and, and the first Jordans and stuff like that. And then the, the shoe brands that are gone, like British Knights and shit like that. Kangaroos. Ooh, Yeah, that should be our next episode. I don't know if it'll be an hour long. Who knows? We wax nostalgic for a good period of time longer than I usually expect. So um, if you're game, I'm game. Sounds good, man. Okay, everybody. Check us out on Facebook under Retro Rocket Entertainment. And uh, we do have some older episodes, but the show's kind of changed over the last year. So most of the episodes are my self-indulgent bullshit. But then Tony came in last year and we changed it. So we're going to try to do an episode every month. Pick a special topic that has something to do with uh, like your teenage years or the 80s and 90s, stuff like that. And uh, thank you, Tony. Oh, my pleasure, sir. Always a pleasure. All right, let's send us out with another Jurassic 5 track, because if you don't like Jurassic 5, you're no friend of mine. Kick rocks. Kick rocks.